Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. is coming to an end and it has been quite a year 2015 2015 and as we move to the new year we're taking a moment to look back every time a bell rings an angel gets his wings i have some very sad news to report to you this morning our colleague our friend and our inspiration Stuart scott passed away earlier today at july's espy awards Stuart scott told the audience when you die, it does not mean that you lose to cancer. You beat cancer by how you live, why you live, and in the manner in which you live. Since 1993, those of us here at ESPN fortunate enough to work with Stuart saw how he lived. And in the past seven years, as he fought cancer, we saw why he lived for his daughters, Taylor and Sydney. And so today, we choose not to say that Stuart lost to cancer at the age of 49. Instead, we'll simply say that we all lost Stuart. Yeah, Stuart had to endure things that other strong personalities don't have to at this company. Um, he came in with his own lexicon and his own style, and it did not sit well with a lot of people. And when John referenced the legendary stories about Stuart. Um, there's there's a very famous Stuart Scott, score, uh, Stuart Scott story where after a particularly ugly email or letter, his co-anchor 
came over to console him and say, okay, bud. And Stuart Scott said, oh, it gets worse. It's been, it's been worse than that. And Stuart played him several of the phone messages he kept through the years to inspire him. Uh, and they were vile and repugnant and big. And Stuart dealt with that for a long time. Nobody else had to hear. So this is a guy that not only dealt with an insidious disease, but he looked different and he sounded different and he was different and he was unique and he was a groundbreaker and a game changer. And those people, they face a different assault. And he never sought pity. He never talked about it. He would never bring those things up. But his early days here, as he was changing the way often young African-American males watch sports, they had one of their guys in the room. Uh, I don't know if people really outside these walls understand what he had to deal with. Outrageous stuff. And he always handled it with absolute dignity. We're going to look back now on the life of a powerful advocate for diversity in journalism. Dory Maynard was 56 when she died this week of lung cancer. NPR Sam Sanders has this remembrance. Since 2001, Dory J. Maynard was president of the Robert C. Maynard Institute for Journalism Education. Her father founded the organization in 1977. Dory Maynard told the History Makers Archive that the mission of the group was simple. We have to be able to tell stories that accurately and fairly reflect all of us. Maynard said she wanted journalists to see things different ways and through different people's eyes. Dory Maynard helped start a program at the Institute that pushed journalists to recognize blind spots in their coverage across five distinct areas, race, class, gender, generation, and geography. Don Garcia is a managing director of the Knight Journalism Fellowship at Stanford University. And she says just by the sheer number of lives she touched, Dory Maynard succeeded. There are very few journalists of color that don't know Dory. <laughs> Garcia says Maynard mentored many journalists, pushing them to go for that job they didn't think they'd get, or advising them as they mapped out their careers. And Garcia says Maynard had a soft-spoken yet firm way of speaking truth, not just to journalists, but to institutions as well. Sometimes people shy away talking about diversity, talking about race, journalism, not wanting to rock the boat. Dory was fearless. And also relentless. Dory Maynard was holding meetings about the future of the Institute and diversity in journalism on the morning of her death. Sam Sanders, NPR News. We were gathered around a weather-beaten table on one of the top floors of a nondescript red brick building in the pre-gentrified South End. This was the headquarters of what would turn out to be the most respected and honored documentary series about the civil rights movement and the seminal experience of my career life. Our boss, Henry Hampton, opened that first production meeting, making two things clear. The name of the series would be Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years, 1954 to 1965. All worries about how that long title would fit into the tiny squares of the printed newspaper TV guides were summarily dismissed. Second, Henry declared the narrator of the series would be Julian Bond. Julian Bond? We were confused. Bond was not a professional narrator. In fact, he never narrated so much as a public service announcement. 
Of course, we knew Julian Bond's civil rights credentials. As a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, he'd been a leader during some of the most dangerous protests during the 10 years of history we were chronicling. He'd gone on to a distinguished career in politics, marked by his two-year battle to be seated in the Georgia House of Representatives, a fight that went all the way to the Supreme Court when the court finally ruled that his opposition to the Vietnam War did not make him ineligible to be a state representative. Julian was the first president of the Southern Poverty Law Center, an organization he co-founded with Morris Dees. He was already in the history books when I met him, already embraced by an international community of activists. That's why we saw him as an important witness whose story should be a part of the series. But Henry said no, one of the few times he made no room for consensus decision-making. Julian Bond would be our narrator. He was never so right. Henry saw then what we didn't appreciate until much later, that Julian's first-hand experience would bring a depth and gravitas to the storytelling that would best even the most skilled professional narrator. And his voice was a wonder. Julian's even unhurried read was just the right note to accompany a story at turns horrifying, heartbreaking, and hopeful. He gave no hint of partisanship. Instead, he was deliberately unobtrusive as he wove the narrative of the young freedom riders signing their wills before they went off to ride the segregated buses, the funeral of the four little girls killed by a bomb blast while in Sunday school, and the triumph of voting rights demonstrators at Selma, joining the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. in the 50-mile walk to the capital of Montgomery. In the years following eyes, I would cross paths with Julian at discussions about the meaning of the civil rights movement today. I hadn't seen him for a while when I bumped into him a couple of summers ago on Martha's Vineyard. We were both at a discussion about race relations attended by more than a few notables. I reminded him who I was and was immediately treated to the humor he was famous for. Oh, no, he said, laughing. If you weren't here, I was going to tell everyone I did all the work on eyes. Eyes brought Julian another kind of recognition. He went on to enjoy a second career as a narrator. But his first mission, his lifelong work, was always social justice. He distinguished himself as an academic and as a global organizer, traveling around the world sharing protest strategies, and always, always mentoring the next generation of activists. He saw his chairmanship as head of the NAACP as part of that work and he lobbied hard for a young Benjamin Jealous to succeed him. Nobody knew better than he the power of youthful energy and passion. I suppose it is inevitable that this is the season of loss for the now aged young people whose determination and sacrifice more than 50 years ago fundamentally changed this country. But it still hurts when a giant like Julian Bond slips away. I'm ever so grateful that I got to know him, and that because of Eyes on the Prize, his voice will never be stilled. I'm Callie Crossley, WGBH. And uh, Dr. Ben, of course, he never would bite his tongue about anything. And I understand that somebody asked me this past weekend, I was in D.C., said, well, Dr. Ben got five from 14 different jobs. And I responded by saying uh, Dr. Ben was a college professor in all these different universities, and he got fired. And what he did by getting fired was he called the bluff, 
of these so-called institutions. I call them state, state institutions. He called it a bluff when they talk about these are academic halls to educate people. And he called it a bluff. And he proved that these colleges and universities are full of crap. They're not trying to educate anybody about anything. So Dr. Ben, I would say about him is that he is ginormous. He is gargantuan. He is magnificent. And we will definitely miss him, but his works are here. The black man of the Nile and his family. Uh, Africa, the mother of Western civilization. Uh, Africa, he has one on Africa, I think it's the mother of religions. I don't remember the complete title. He has another little book on where he breaks down the Bible. He has another one entitled The uh, Cultural Genocide in the, uh, in the Black Studies Curriculum. And he really is a giant. He's been in Kemet since 1938. He tells the story where he used to go there, and he had to sleep on the beach because he was not permitted to go into the hotel. Why? Because the people that owned the hotel were Arabs or whites, not because he was black, but because they were white people or Arabs being their demonic selves. Okay, now three more women have come forward <laughs> to accuse Bill Cosby of assaulting them, bringing the grand total to North America. And I don't know what to... <laughs> I don't know what to say anymore about this guy, except he has tranquilized more women than scented candles. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Jerry Baxter has handed down sentences to the 11 convicted teachers in Atlanta who were convicted on racketeering charges after they either changed the answers on standardized tests for their students or gave the students answers so they would do better on the standardized tests. Now, they were given the opportunity to take a plea deal even after they were convicted. In fact, uh, the judge urged them to do so, and he warned them that if they didn't take the plea deal, he would hand down very, very harsh sentences. And that's exactly what he did. Now, only two of the 11 convicted uh, teachers did agree to the plea deal. They got much lighter sentences. But for the eight who did not take it and who have been uh, sentenced, their sentences are outrageous. Now, three of them actually got 20-year sentences. They have to serve seven years behind bars, and the rest of the time they will be on probation. Um, also, five of them will get five years behind bars. Two of them will get two years behind bars. The eight who rejected a deal received sentences ranging from one to seven years in jail. For the two educators who accepted a, uh, the deal, Baxter followed the state's recommendations and gave one former teacher one year of home confinement and a former uh, testing coordinator six months of weekends spent in jail. Prosecutors had urged sentences of between one and three years behind bars for three former regional directors with Atlanta Public Schools. All were sentenced 
to serve seven years in prison, as well as probation, fines, and community service. So as you can see in this case, he actually handed down sentences that were even harsher than what prosecutors had asked for. Now, when he was uh, questioned about this harshness, he says that what the teachers did was the sickest thing that's ever happened in this town. This is the sickest thing that's ever happened in Atlanta. Teachers who are under a tremendous amount of pressure to teach to a test change test answers. That's the worst thing that's happened to Atlanta. Do you really believe that for a second? No, no. This guy wanted to send a message in his uh, in his own mind. I'm not going to let these, these people, people get away with it. These people. These people. Okay. People. Who are these people? I mean, you're you're you you got tough on the teachers. Wow. How bold, dude. This isn't real uh, toughness. This isn't real justice. None of the top executives at the banks that committed this an unbelievable economic meltdown with. Record-breaking fraud went to jail. None of them went to jail. Are you going to send teachers to jail for seven years? You want to fire them? We all agree, okay, if they actually cheated. By the way, a lot of the people who did not take the plea deal, they didn't take it because they said, we're innocent. We don't agree, okay? We didn't do it like some people did it, but we weren't among them. I don't know. Look, they got convicted, so it is what it is, right? But they, they were... They could have taken sentences where they wouldn't have served any time in jail, but they took these. They went to trial because they thought for sure that they were innocent, right? Yep. And those guys, oh, we're going to show them justice. We're going to bring them to justice. Seven years, but none of the bankers went to jail. They had they went after one tiny guy who was in his twenties. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is a joke, man. It's a colossal joke. Just to give you an example, uh, so Fabrice Touré was actually found guilty of six counts of securities fraud, right? He's the guy from Goldman Sachs who was a junior-level player. They didn't go after any of the executives. None of the CEOs were guilty. The guys who took home hundreds of millions of dollars, none of them were guilty. Only the fabulous Fab Touré, Mm -hmm. a low-level worker at Goldman Sachs. And what did he get? So he was convicted, Mm -hmm. okay? And so, I mean, six counts of securities fraud, that seems serious, right? Right. I mean, racketeering is a serious charge. That's what these teachers were found guilty of. Uh, He got no jail time, and he had to pay an $825,000 fine, which sounds like a lot of money unless you're someone who works at Goldman Sachs. So, I mean, just think about the two-tier justice system that we have here right now. Teachers who are already seeing their salaries cut, their class sizes increase, they're being forced to teach to a standardized test when they're teaching in areas that deal with a tremendous amount of poverty, right? They feel so much pressure that they change the test scores, and and that's it. They're found guilty of racketeering charges, and they have to serve seven years behind bars. In reality, a 20-year sentence, seven years behind Rars, the rest of the time they're on probation. These are criminals now. They're considered hardened criminals. Now, they are going to appeal this, um, and the reason why they didn't take the plea deal is because they maintain that they're innocent, and if they took the plea deal, then they couldn't appeal. So they're going to go ahead and appeal this, and let's see what ends up happening. But this judge seems extremely unwilling to hear them out in any way, shape, or form. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. 
story that we've been following, a New Jersey school board voting to fire that teacher whose third grade class, they wrote get well letters to a convicted cop killer. Marilyn Zuniga was suspended last month after she tweeted about the delivery of her students' letters to that inmate while his family said that he was dealing with complications from diabetes. He is currently serving a life sentence for killing Philadelphia police officer Daniel back in 1981. The teacher claims that it was her students' idea to write the letters and that she was trying to teach them compassion. Now her lawyer is saying that she might take legal action to get her job back. All right, so my opinion, I think this is the worst lesson that you can teach students, that if you kill a cop, my classroom is going to send you letters of sympathy when you're behind bars. I think those letters should have been to the cop's family saying thank you for the sacrifice that he made for God and for country. So what, Harris, you have you have young girls, maybe one in third grade, yeah. not quite third grade. They're second in kindergarten. Actually, you know what? I want to just go back to the very basics of this because I think you give this teacher too much credit. Why didn't she do her homework? Right. Why didn't she find out the difference between the deceased and the killer? I, I'm not so convinced that she even knew really the difference of, of what families oh, really, had suffered. I'm, I'm not convinced that that's not the case. I'm convinced that she did know what was happening. She knew this was a cop killer behind bars, and she was, Absolutely. She was on Mobius' side. But I don't think she thought about it or studied enough to even understand the ramifications of her decision. Meaning, I don't think she knew what this case was Well, really she knows about. now. She's she definitely got, got knows fired. now. Well, the big question I is, think it's she pathetic get a job that she's trying to blame third graders. Yes. That, <laughs> She's trying to put the blame on third graders that this kind of situation would not even be on their, their, their radar. Mm -hmm. How would they even know about something like this? I blame, the, I blame beyond that the school, the school who hired her and actually put her in exactly. a position to be in charge of these children. I mean, when they found out, by the way, the school found out through news reports. They didn't even find out firsthand from the teacher that this assignment was given to these children. And then upon learning it, the school officials suspended her with pay. This was on April 10th. Ainsley, I don't even know why we're writing letters to anybody in jail, mm. good or bad. Why are we learning about math and social studies? Right, I agree. <laughs> she needs to be fired. She's got to learn a lesson from this. All right, Tony, she's saying that they wrote the letters because this guy behind bars who killed a cop has complications from diabetes. What about the complications mm. that the cop's family is now dealing with, not mm. having a father, not having a child, not having a husband around the Thanksgiving table? Ainsley, you said it exactly right. If you're going to try to teach kids compassion, why don't we pick people in our community and society that deserve our emulation and compassion? And those are people like this police officer and his family, who I think should have been the subject of this assignment, not a cop killer. Words versus deeds. For now, the fraternity Sigma Alpha Epsilon is perhaps the most famous fraternity in America for all the wrong reasons. It's also been disbanded from the campus of the University of Oklahoma at Norman for all the wrong reasons. Despite what you may believe, it's been disbanded because it got caught on tape and it embarrassed the university, period. Consider this a silly racist chant among teenage college students lands several of them with immediate expulsion and the closure of its house. In neighboring Missouri, an entire city targets, oppresses, and exploits millions of dollars from a black community, Ferguson, and lest we forget, kills them on a whim. And who gets fired? No one. Oh, there's some resignations, yes, but not one firing. There's a world of difference between the two. In Oklahoma, the most powerless people on campus are handed the most extreme sanctions expulsions. In Missouri, 
politicians and police who conspire to loot, exploit, and breed an entire community for years, and no one gets fired. Wow. What's worse, racist words or racist actions that hurt thousands of people for years? The University of Oklahoma, founded in 1890, could have used this as well a teaching moment about the way racism moves from one generation to the next and how closed systems in groups perpetuate these ideas. The university, while disclaiming these ideas, could have used its history department to teach the roots of those ideas in America and Oklahoman history. If it has an African-American studies program, it could have been a time to shine by providing a study program for SAE members. But first and foremost, it could have defended the First Amendment principle of freedom of speech and used the light of reason to flush out the power of hatred. Instead, a 19-year-old is marked, perhaps for life, with a brand of racism for being drunk and stupid and mean. After the shock wears off, bitterness will fill his soul. College, of all places, can't jump the gun for PR reasons. It must use opportunities to teach, to enlighten, to broaden consciousness for all students, even those, especially those, who love to sing about hanging niggers. It started about 30 days ago with Roads Must Fall and Roads So White. So take a look. Together, those two hashtags got about 6,000 mentions after this statue of British colonizer Cecil Rhodes was defaced. And since then, those phrases have been used more than 35,000 times. Well, soon after, the protest spread to another university, this time in Durban, where this statue of King George V was covered in white paint. And moving now south to Uteneg, where members of the Economic Freedom Fighters political party got involved when they set this Boer War Memorial alight. But anti-colonial protesters are getting pushback. On Wednesday in Pretoria, African singer Sunat Bridges changed herself to this statue of former President Paul Kruger, protesting what she called vandalism of South African heritage. So today we want to look at the Roads Must Fall movement and hear how the student experience could perhaps be improved for black students in South Africa and beyond. Let me just go back to this statue because it started off a, a big conversation. Uh, and on the university map here, campus map, we've got the statue, statue of Cecil John Rhodes here, Elowani. This is a statue you know well. When you go past this statue, what's the impact on you and other students, black South African students? Can you explain to the rest of the world why it's been such a catalyst for this discussion? Um, I must just say that we commend students for having raised this conversation to this point where even academics who were affected but could not raise their voices and be heard um, could not stay silent anymore. Um, this is a statue of a man who bullied others in order to amass resources um, that enabled him to take land um, from um, South African people and to have a statue of him. And it's not only the fact that the statue is there, it's where it was pla it's placed, it's also the size. If you compare this statue with 
statues of those who um, were awarded with Nobel Peace Prizes. <laughs> um, um, it's, it's just... It's so it, it makes, so when, you see, when you see it every day, it makes you feel what? That it's a reminder that white people can take from black people oh. and will be celebrated. Yeah, I mean, um, it's thanks for having me on this program. It's an honor to be here with all the panelists. What I want to say is, uh, as a student at, at Oxford University in, in Britain, uh, there's even more symbols than we can even count. I mean, every college, every street has a symbol. And Rhodes, uh, for example, has not only a huge house um, where the African Studies Library is actually housed, um, but there's the Rhodes Trust, which gives out all these Rhodes scholarships, uh, mostly to privileged white men over the last century. Um, there's a statue of Rhodes on the high street. And then there's many other, um, many other symbols. For example, there's the Codrington Library, uh, which is named for a, a slave owner from, uh, who was a plantation owner in Barbados. And through the labor of, of uh, enslaved Africans, was able to extract wealth and then endow this library. Um, so there's many things at Oxford that are quite similar and resonate with the struggle at Rhodes. And I want to say to the to the tweet that you just shared, um, first it's statues, then it's paintings, then it's books. There's an element of truth to that, which is that this the whole university system is based around Eurocentrism and white supremacy and capitalism and all of these oppressive uh, not so, just so, history. So Brian, I, I'm not going to let you get away with a big sweeping statement like that without giving me an example. So and I'll example, be very happy to get in uh, on that one, yeah. Brian. You, you, let, you let Brian off the hook. I, I want to hear Brian's. Yeah. Let, let's, let's hear what Brian has to say first, press off before you let him get off the hook. Brian, give us, give us an example. Okay, so um, for example, I, I'm in the history department. Yeah. Uh, and in the history building, there's a room, there's some, a room called the Trevor Roper Room. Yeah. Trevor Roper is this notorious Oxford historian who claimed uh, that Africans had no history before Europeans come to Africa. Yeah. Um, you know, this is someone who, is, is, who was advocating th these openly sort of racist and white supremacist views about history, and he's someone who's honored with his own room in the history department. Right. Um, if you look at the curriculum, for example, whether it's uh, history or English or philosophy or any other, um, any other curriculum, you find that most of the authors that are taught mm. are, are white male European authors. Sure. Uh, so how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race, so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Bill Roden on Sports. The other um, big news this week was at the University of Missouri, where a combination of students, students on the campus uh, students joined by athletes brought national pressure to bear, uh, enough pressure to bear that on Monday the president of the University of Missouri system and the chancellor also resi resigned. And this was probably less than 24 hours after a group of uh, football players, uh, all the football players, uh, of course the black players led it, said that unless the president resigned, 
they were not going to practice and they were going to forfeit their game against BYU this Saturday, which of course would mean the school would have to pay out a million a million dollars. Right. I'm just curious. What uh, I, I frankly was overjoyed. I mean, I, not overjoyed, but I was exhilarated that uh, th- that the members of the football team would be the final straw that broke the camel's back because there had been uh, protest. Right. I mean, students had been saying, "Listen, we're tired of being called the N word." Yeah, the N word and and swastikas and feces mm. and just the general uh, climate of racism that most of us feel all the time. But I guess it's intensified in places like uh, Columbia, Missouri, or or probably Auburn, Alabama. Just take your pick. And I thought it was great, and and I wonder what you guys thought, that the football players finally broke out of the cocoon and said, you know what, we are the most highly visible people on this campus. We will lend our vocal support to the movement. I think that it's almost like a chess game. You got to know that at, at Missouri and a lot of places, a a lot of coaches. I said, okay, you know what what the hell does this mean for us? And I'm wondering what those conversations like, let's say in Alabama or Ohio State, <laughs> bringing in you know coaches bringing in like you know like Jamal. Hey Jamal, well, uh, how you feeling? You know, <laughs> how you, you everything okay? Right. You know here here you would you, you, you need anything? Right. Yeah. You know I'd be, I'd, be, I'd give anything to know. What kind of conversations are being held at places like Clemson, uh, Ohio State, uh, Alabama, anywhere, Mississippi, anywhere, anywhere. where, where right. 60% of the team is black? Right. You know, are they bringing them in kind of Collin or are they bringing them in as a man? All right, now. You know, don't get, you know, don't get any ideas. You know? Well, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they're having at least at this point they're having it amongst themselves at the very least, and they should. Mm-hmm. But you know, and going back, I mean, it's promising. That, that they were that they stood up like this. Hopefully, it 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 moves on to other campuses. They realize they have this power, and they really need these athletes. Really need to to open their eyes and see what's going on here because you know, especially in college, most of these guys are not going to the pros. Right. You're going to be a regular Joe soon enough, and you're pro- trust me. It, one of these things, one of the things that this incident did for me was open my eyes a little wider to the fact that. You know, you said people were stunned that they did this. They were stunned or appalled. Yeah. You know, like, you know, boys, stay in your place type stuff. You know, just play sports. We don't want to hear from you. What? You get this. You're getting a free education. Shut up. Exactly. You know, just accept it. You know, and it it opens my eyes more. And I I know this stuff exists. And even me, who, you know, felt like I, you know, I know that. You know, a lot of fans are racist. You know, they they can, you know, a lot of people can separate what, you know, they're cheering on the field from how they feel, you know, as a person. You know, they may cheer for you on the field, but they, they far from respect you as a person. And this really, you know, when I'm looking at this and I'm looking, people's, looking at people's comments, mm-hmm. whether it be Twitter or whether it be comments to articles, and, you, and it, you really see how many people, you know, big time sports fans. Right. Do not respect these people as individuals, right? They're, they're as people, like, autonomous. It's like autonomous. it's like it's like you know you always we always bring up like gladiator, like right. literally, like it's like I'm watching Game of Thrones or something, and you're just cheering on this guy. Right. You don't care what happens to him. You don't even consider him a person, right? You know. So, and I think that this should open, especially college athletes, open your eyes to see that these people who are cheering for you, they are not on your side. No, no, you're absolutely right. Like sixty thousand people. Uh, at 
place like Columbia, Missouri, or or Fayetteville, Arkansas, are cheering you, and it's almost as if they're not they're not cheering you per se. They're no. just cheering this sort of icon on a on a video game. But as soon as you, as you said, protest to buck the system, they're like, "Boy, <laughs> you must are you out of your mind." Right. And I think I think that if I think this probably eye opening to many of the athletes to say, "Wait a minute, I thought that." I was your guy. He said, no, right. you're my boy. Beast mode. Beast mode. Hey, I'm just here so I don't get fined. Excuse my friends, but I'm in France. <laughs> I'm just saying. So that's why I talked about that march in Paris, France. That was not about free speech. If you said, Josue Charlie, what are you saying? That you're about free speech and call satire when we know Molly Iris said that satire is for the rich. Satire is not for rich people to oppress more people, poor people, people of color. That's not what satire is supposed to do. That's the tool that we use to talk about the 1%, not the tool of the 1% to talk about the 99%. That entire paper is an anti-Muslim rap. That's what that is. That march was a solidifying of white power in this way. That those masters and mistresses of war that marched. You talking about free speech? There's been 119 people arrested in France since that march. All Muslim. That's free speech? Comedian gets arrested because of Facebook posts. That's free speech. But you know, France. I mean, France isn't operating that same way in terms of how we think about free speech. But even free speech in this country is limited. But I really think that that march on a global level was saying, "You want to say Black Lives Matter? We're going to show you how they don't matter, and we're going to start with these masters of war." and these empire builders, and, 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 and the president of Israel leading it all while he's genocidal around Palestinian people. You know, today, in USA Today, it was reported that by 2016, get this, by 2016, 1% of the world's population will hold 50% of the wealth. Think about that. 1% of the world's population will hold 50% of the world's wealth. 1% is going to own half the world? Think about what that means. In, such, in, in this country, think about what that means, what it means globally. To me, that march was, in a way, a response to us claiming Black Lives Matter. That march was them showing us that Black lives don't matter to them, to that system. Whether they're Black lives in Ferguson or Black in Brazil, Black in Nigeria, Black in Puerto Rico, Black in France, Black in Australia, Black in Palestine, Black in Mexico. As we are crying and fighting for black lives, they are telling us not only don't you matter, we will use everything at our disposal, including the state and military apparatus to silence you. And if not, we will torture you. 
And if not, we will drone you, your families and your celebrations. Uh, thanks, John. Hello again. Well, a group of Chelsea fans on a train in a Paris metro station has brought to the fore once again the issue of racism in football. They were on their way to the club's Champions League tie at Paris Saint-Germain and were captured on amateur video as they twice pushed away a black man trying to board the train. They were then heard to chant, We're racist and that's the way we like it. Got my niggas in Paris and they going gorillas, huh? As France struggles to cope with the aftermath of last week's attacks, one political party there expects to capitalize on growing fears about immigration and radical Islam. The world's Leo Hornack spent an evening with members of the youth wing of the far-right National Front, or as it's known there, Le Front National. In some ways, the club room here in the 13th arrondissement of Paris feels like youth clubs everywhere. Coca-Cola in plastic cups, awkward flirting near the snack bar, and on the walls, a poster with the slogan 100% Front National, 0% Migrant. Véronique Fornili is one of the organisers of tonight's gathering. All political parties have agreed to suspend campaigning for next month's regional elections as part of France's national emergency after the attacks. But this might be Véronique and her friend's moment. The France National leader, Marine Le Pen, has built a career out of trying to bring her far-right party into the mainstream of French politics. She was third in the first round of the 2012 presidential election. And the message for years has been that France's future is under threat from immigration and particularly Muslim immigration. I know from uh, some friends that we have uh, had a lot of people wanting to join since Friday. And why is that? Um, I think a lot of people uh, remember that National Front has uh, warned them a long time ago about the danger of immigration and uh, Islamism in France. So they see that uh, we were right all along and... Uh, and they also see that a government has failed to protect us. You know, some people do say, some people think that it's a racist organisation and that it still is hostile to other cultures. You know, what would be your answer to that? I would answer to them to just write what we propose because there is absolutely nothing racist about it. And there is a lot of people from different cultures, from different countries uh, who are joining us. Cédric Cassanet is another of the local Front National activists. He works near one of the cafes that was attacked by gunmen last Friday. He says he heard the gunshots and the sirens before his Facebook feed started going crazy. But he and his friends weren't surprised by the news. We were a bit prepared for this tragedy. In comparison to uh, the rest of the population of Paris, we are not shocked. Hello. The evening's lectures begin in the club room. An invited author speaks at length about the history of the French language, the greatness of French culture. On the surface, it's all quite dry, quite academic, a long way from the demagoguery or table-thumping that you might expect from a radical party known for its anti-Muslim and anti-Semitic views. But that's the point, says Cedric. This is a long-term strategy. They're preparing to govern. He plans to run for election eventually. On the wall across the room is another campaign poster. It shows a young woman with a French flag painted on her face and next to her, a woman wearing a burqa. The slogan? Choose your ghetto. Vote Front National. Choose between the French culture, the French values, or choose for Islamic laws. Is that really the choice that 
people face in France? France national or Sharia law? I think yes, because we try to defend the French values and we struggle against the Islamic culture. Back in the clubroom, the speaker's wrapping up with a Q&A. I find myself scanning the titles on the bookshelves near where I'm sitting. Things like, will the 21st century be the Muslim century? And lots of books on French history. And then this happens. The speaker asks the group, who's going to forbid me from being a racist? Someone in the audience says with a laugh, Taubira. That's France's socialist justice minister, Christiane Taubira. She's black. Then the speaker responds, C'est Guénon. That's she monkey. And the crowd laughs. And they go in gorillas. Haitian immigrants in the Dominican Republic are still not quite sure where they stand. A deadline passed last month for them and their Dominican-born children to apply for legal status in the Dominican Republic or risk deportation. But so far, no mass deportations. The Haitian and Dominican governments say those Haitians who have left have mostly self-deported on a voluntary basis. But that's not what reporter Bridget Huber heard when she spoke to some of those who have left. André Joseph was born in Haiti, but he spent almost his entire life in the Dominican Republic. He's undocumented, though. About a month ago, he returned to Haiti for the first time in some 40 years, and not by choice. He says about 48 hours before the deadline to apply for permanent residency, a group of Dominican men came to his house with guns, hammers, and sticks. The men were going to kill me, he says. I was with my wife and son, and we ran. We left our house and all our possessions. Our lives are more important than the things we own. The family hid in a field all night and went to the police station in the morning. But Joseph says the authorities didn't want to hear about the anti-immigrant mob. He says they told him, Haitian devil, go back to your country. This is not your country. The police locked them up, then put them in a truck and took them to the border along with about 25 others. Now they're stranded at a school on the Haitian side. About 50 people are staying in the school. Beddings piled up along the walls and on top of desks. Some young women are braiding each other's hair, while others are cooking beans over an open fire on the ground outdoors. Natacha Dona is sitting outside the school. I have her parents brought her to the Dominican Republic when she was eight. That was 33 years ago. She's here with her four sons, all Dominican-born. That's Kevin's, her youngest. Dona's five months pregnant, and she's been sick for a while. When police came to her house a couple of weeks ago, she thought they might help her get to the hospital. She says, they didn't even give me time to grab clothes or my kids' papers. Nothing. I ended up here. Everyone I talk to at the school tells a similar story. Donna said she thinks she has some relatives in the north of Haiti, but she doesn't know how to find them. The father of her kids is Dominican, and even though the couple separated, he was still helping provide for them. Donna doesn't know how she'll take care of them in Haiti. The border checkpoint is a few miles away from the school. It has the inauspicious name of Malpas, bad crossing. The Haitian government pledged to build a welcome center for deportees near the border, 
But I went to the site and there was nothing there, just a big empty lot with a sign reading, Welcome Center for Repatriated People. One aid worker told me people who leave the school get about $20 from the government, but not much else. Andre Joseph says one of the worst things about being at the school is having nothing to do. He says the Dominicans have profited from years of Haitian labor, and now they're casting them aside. He says, we Haitians are really the Dominican slaves. We've made them rich. Asked whether he considers himself Haitian or Dominican, Joseph says recent events have left little doubt. I'm Haitian, he says. If I was Dominican, they wouldn't have expelled me like some dog. You know niggas die for equal pay, right? You know when I work, I ain't your slave, right? You know I ain't shucking the job and then high it. You know this ain't back in the days, right? Tonight on My Take, the Washington Post, Clinton Yates says the Justice Department is confusing the nation. The Justice Department is sending extremely mixed messages to America. On the one hand, they issued a report saying that they found widespread racial profiling in the way that the Ferguson, Missouri Police Department does a lot of what they do in a way that not so stunningly overcriminalizes black people. The examples are horrific. Racist emails, epithets being yelled at people walking down the street. The list goes on and on. What they deduced was that the group's policing efforts were more designed to make money rather than make people safe. Yet now, the department announced that they have no plans to charge Darren Wilson in the death of Michael Brown. Of course, I don't believe that Wilson is responsible for the long-term pattern of behavior from his police department, but there has to be a correlation. Bringing charges against him would not necessarily be an immediate guilty sentence, but it's certainly a case worthy of trying. For as much validation as many people got in hearing from DOJ that one police department is definitely discriminating against the people that it serves, to turn around and put no teeth behind that ruling when it comes to justice surrounding a dead teenager is incredibly deflating. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. All's my life I has to fight, nigga. All's my life I hard times like yeah, bad trips like yeah. Nazareth, I'm fucked up, homie. You fucked up, but if God got us, then we gon' be alright. Our prosecutors believe unanimously that a retrial will not yield a different result. Those were the words of North Carolina Attorney General Roy Cooper this afternoon in explaining his decision not to retry CMPD officer Randall Carrick for the shooting death of Jonathan Farrell two years ago. WFAE's Gwendolyn Glenn has this report. Cooper noted that eight jurors voted to acquit Carrick while only four thought he was guilty. Still, he has no regrets about the decision to prosecute. Carrick was on trial for voluntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting of 24-year-old Jonathan Farrell, who was unarmed. Farrell had been in an accident and banged on the door of a nearby homeowner seeking help, according to prosecutors. The homeowner took him for a burglar and called police. Three officers answered the call. One aimed a taser at Farrell, who then started to run in the direction of the officers. Carrick fired 12 shots. 
10 hit Farrell. Farrell's mother, Georgia Farrell, said she was not surprised but is disappointed in Cooper's decision. But we gon' be all right. We begin today's show in Baltimore, where a mistrial has been declared in the case of a police officer charged in the death of Freddie Gray. Gray died in April from a spinal injury sustained while being transported in the back of a police van. Gray's family and attorneys say his voice box was crushed and his spine was, quote, 80% severed at his neck. Six officers were charged in Freddie Gray's death. Officer William Porter was the first one to go to trial, charged with involuntary manslaughter, second-degree assault, reckless endangerment and misconduct in office. On Wednesday, a judge declared a mistrial after jurors were unable to reach a verdict on any of the charges after three days of deliberation. Attorneys are expected to meet this morning to decide if Officer Porter should be tried again. Gray's death in April sparked large protests in Baltimore. On Wednesday, scores of Baltimore residents took to the streets again to protest the hung jury. At least two people were arrested. But we gonna be all right. When a child dies, news break. Cleveland officials announced no charges to be filed in the police killing of 12-year-old Tamia Rice. There is something shattering about the death, the killing of a child. When a child dies, the natural order is torn, the stars weep, and the earth quakes. We have become so accustomed to this system, we suppose it is natural instead of a human imposition. Politicians in the pocket of so-called police unions bow before bags of silver and blink away the death of a child, especially if a black child. What man-made institution is more precious than a child? What job? What so-called profession? What office? What state? When a child dies, adults don't deserve to breathe their stolen air. When a child dies, the living must not rest until they have purged the poison that dared harm such a one. When a child dies, time runs backward and attempts to right such a wrong. This should inspire movements worldwide to fight like never before. For something vile has happened before our eyes. A child has been killed. And in America, because it's a black child, it means next to nothing. But we gonna be all right. Family members and supporters are demanding justice for Sandra Bland after a grand jury failed to indict anyone for her death. Bland, a 28-year-old African-American woman, was arrested on July 10th when a traffic stop escalated into a confrontation with the officer involved. Three days later, her body was found hanging from a trash bag inside her jail cell. Authorities say she killed herself, a claim her family rejects. They've also questioned why Bland was arrested and jailed in the first place and why she was kept behind bars for so long. Sandra Bland had recently moved to Texas to start a job at Prairie View A&M University, her alma mater. She was driving near campus when Texas State Trooper Brian Insinia pulled her over and accused her of failing to signal a lane change. Police dash cam video that captured part of the arrest shows Insinia threatening to forcibly remove Bland from her car. Sandra Bland was jailed and given $5,000 bond. Three days later, she was found dead in her cell in the Water County Jail in Texas. On Monday, a Texas grand jury rejected charges in connection with her death, although prison officers uh, wouldn't face charges. 
uh, Encinio could still be indicted when the grand jury reconvenes next month. Nigga, I'm at the preacher's door. My knees getting weak and my gun might blow, but we gon' be all right. All right. Nigga, we gon' be all right. Nigga, we gon' be all right. We gon' be all right. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gon' be all right. Nigga, we gon' be all right. Huh? We gon' be all right. Nigga, we gon' be all right. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gon' be all right. Tell us about Cleve Browder and how you came to tell his story. Sure. Uh, Khalif Browder was a young man who was arrested in the Bronx a few years back on a robbery allegation. He was walking home from a party when a police car pulled up and somebody in the back seat pointed him out and accused him of having robbed him of a backpack a couple weeks earlier. Khalif said he hadn't done it and thought that the case would be disposed of very quickly. He went to the police station, explained that they had the wrong person, but what he thought would be a quick case turned out to drag on for three years. And so that was three years of shuttling back and forth between the courts and the Rikers Island jail system, trying to get this case resolved. And in the end, after a full three years, the prosecutors realized they didn't have enough evidence to proceed, and they dropped the charges against him. You know, one of the countless remarkable aspects of the story was uh, Khalif's uh, resolve throughout that he actually get a chance to test the evidence against him uh, it sounds like there were various plea offers made along the way and occasions in which he could have walked out of Rikers uh, based on a deal that would have allowed him to time served. But he simply wouldn't submit to that. He ultimately was released, probably to his own complete amazement. <laughs> but when you then visited him back in the Bronx and out in the world, uh, it seems like he was quite damaged or in some distress. He clearly was was suffering. You know, he had told me about, you know, various moments that he was offered plea deals, which he turned down. At one point, a judge said to him, he had been locked up for, you know, almost three years, and the judge said, you know, if you plead guilty to uh, two misdemeanors today, you can go home. And he says, I'm all right, I did not do it. I'm all right. And the judge is sort of baffled, like, you're all right? And he says, yes, I want to go to trial. So even at that late date, he was insisting that, you know, he was not going to plead out to something that he had not done. And then shortly after that, the uh, judge, you know, informed him, the DA informed him that the case was going to be dismissed. They didn't have enough evidence to, to have a trial, and they just let him go. And he just, he could just never seem to reconcile what had happened. He, you know, one day he's there, he's a prisoner, and the next day they just let him go with no fanfare, no apology, no explanation. And he just... The way he described it to me was he acted like it was just, they acted like it was just okay, and it wasn't okay, it wasn't okay. And the fact that it just was not okay that he had been robbed of three years of his life, he found so deeply disturbing that that's really what propelled him, I think, to want to talk to me in great detail about what he'd endured. It also seems to have propelled him to some real depression. Um, I may be wrong, but I think in the story it recounts that he tried to take his life shortly after or in the months after his release? You know, a few months after his release, he did attempt to take his life while in his home in the Bronx. He tried to hang himself from a stairwell, and he was rushed to the hospital. Right. Did you fear the worst? I mean, there are reporters, you know, when they get this deep into a story and by definition this close to their subjects, it's all quite intimate and sometimes fraught. 
you must have worried for him. Um, I definitely worried for him, you know, while I was working on the story and, and for months and months afterwards. I mean, I'm not sure if I was overly optimistic or if I was in denial myself, but I actually never thought his story would end the way that it did, which is that he took his own life this past June. You know, actually, at that time, there were, at least to me, no real indicators that things were going awry. He actually seemed to be doing better than he had been since he'd come home two years earlier. He was in Bronx Community College. He was doing well, making up for the years that he had lost of his schooling while he was locked up, and he was making some new friends and starting to imagine a new life for himself. So it certainly didn't look like he was going down the path of despair in those final weeks and months. When you know we've been hurt, been down before. Nigga, when our pride was low, looking at the world like, where do we go? Nigga, and we hate poor, poor, when they kill us dead in the street for sure. Over this past week, uh, many of us have seen on the television, have read in newspapers, and have seen all the reports about uh, Walter Scott, who, in my words, uh, was murdered in North Charleston. It has really uh, created uh, a real heartache uh, and a yearning for justice. Uh, people, and not just in the African-American community, but in, for all people, and not just in the Charleston area or even in South Carolina, uh, but across our country. As we are in uh, the Christian season of Easter, we're reminded of the story of Jesus gathering his disciples in Galilee in the upper room. And in that week following Easter, every disciple was there but one, Thomas. And if you don't mind a small recap of the story, Jesus walks through a locked door, and the disciples see something that they were amazed to see, and that is the living Jesus. And they were able to see the nails in his hands, and they were able to put their hand in his side to prove to them Jesus allowed this so that they would have no doubt. But one body, one person was missing, and that was Thomas. And when Thomas heard the news, he said he didn't believe it. He said, there's no way, it's impossible. Jesus is dead. There's no way that he came and visited. But the next week, Thomas was there. Jesus walked in. He said, I won't believe until I see the nails. I won't believe until I can put my hand in your side. And it was only when he was able to do that he said, I believe, my Lord and my God. Ladies and gentlemen of the Senate, when we first heard on the television that a police officer had gunned down an unarmed African-American in North Charleston by the name of Walter Scott, there were some who said, wow, the national story has come home to South Carolina. But there were many who said there is no way that a police officer would ever shoot somebody in the back six, seven, eight times. But like Thomas, when we were able to see the video and we were able to see the gunshots and when we saw him fall to the ground 
And when we saw the police officer come and handcuff him on the ground without even trying to resuscitate him, without even seeing if he was really alive, without calling an ambulance, without calling for help, and to see him die face down in the ground as if he were gunned down like game. I believe we all were like Thomas and said, I believe. What if Mr. Santiago was not there to record what happened? I'm sure that many of us would still say, like Thomas, we don't believe. We don't believe. We don't believe. So uh, I want to ask you also, and the panel too, sure. about the, the, the thing that everybody was talking about this week, the guy they call Officer Slam yeah. in yeah. Columbia, South Carolina. <laughs> this guy body slammed this 16-year-old oh, yeah, black girl in, in class. I mean, she would not give up her phone, yeah. uh, which was wrong, and then she wouldn't leave the room, which is wrong. But he compounded it by, I think this is just horrendous to, to treat a, a child like this, a, a teenager. Um, but I also have sympathy for people in authority because I think parents just let kids do anything nowadays so they never listen to authority. And not having any kids myself or ever being around them except on a plane, I'm basing this on movies and television. <laughs> Am I wrong that parents are just not doing the job? It's overzealous policing and underzealous parenting? Um, first of all, Bill, you're assuming that all of these kids have parents and have... No, she was a foster child, that's true. But and some of them come from very difficult situations. Of course. I've had this experience working with some of these kids. Now, I'm not excusing them, but I want to tell you... This cop could have broken her back. Oh, horrible. He could have broken her neck. Yeah, we're not She could be dead today. We're not defending. And so he overreacted. Yes. Mr. Slam, whatever they call him, had no right to pick up that young lady no. and the chair. All agree. And, right. you know, throw them across the room. Okay. And thank God it wasn't my child. But what, yeah. <laughs> I will say, Bill, if I get, yes. I see the, I saw another video of a guy slamming the principal down. And when I was in school, I was scared of, maybe because of my, my mom, but I was scared and respectful of teachers. Me and too. I think that's getting a little blurrier because you see them in class like, fuck you. And it's very tough when you it's, see kids that are 13 and are this tall beating up teachers. It, it, it's back and forth. You know, the teachers get uh, too tough with them, but then the kids that you're actually scared of in classes that are 15, 16, I'm scared of kids as young as nine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it's so true. When we were kids, there was a, 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 an alliance between the parents and the teachers that the kids could not drive a wedge through. And now the alliance is against the teachers. That's why they can't teach. Because the little brats go home and complain, and then the parents complain to the teachers. They're not on the side of the teachers. All that may be true, some of that may be true, but the fact of the matter is there are different ways to handle these situations. You can dismiss the whole class, you can leave and you can get with the principal and you can talk about what's the best way to do this. You can pick up the phone, you can call the parents, but for the police to come into the school and pick up the kid in the yes, parents' we agree. That's, That's a bad much. example. That's the part we agree That's on. Too much. <laughs> 
Can it's a 200 pound man not rest a, a cell phone from a 76 pound child? I don't think it was about the cell phone at that point. It was about not leaving the room. But, but the problem, the deeper problem I'm trying to get to is that what I see is parents who just constantly negotiate with their children. I, I've, I've been in these situations with parents and it's, everything is, hey, hey, what do you think? What do you think, buddy? Is it time to go? How about get in the fucking car? <laughs> I mean, all I hear about on the news are dirty cops. Cops who shoot innocent black kids. It's crap! There were 84 murders in this city last year. Were all of those cops shooting innocent black boys? Hell no. Those were blacks turning guns on each other, and yet somehow I'm the animal. Brandon Parker is dead because he didn't have respect. Because those people out there who are chanting... Crying over his body, they didn't teach him the right values. They didn't teach him respect. He didn't respect me. He didn't respect my badge. Questioning my authority was not his right. And the New York Post says, send in the moms to tame the Baltimore rioters. It refers to one woman in particular who took matters into her own hands, literally. Toya Graham spotted her 16-year-old son in a crowd of teens vandalizing and looting. Cameras captured the moment that she confronted her son. She yelled at him and struck him multiple times. And video of the moment spread quickly on TV and social media. More than two million people viewed her response to the attention on our Facebook page. The hashtag Mom of the Year began trending on Twitter. And today, Toya Graham, a single mom of six, joins us only on CBS This Morning. Good morning to you, Ms. Toya Graham. Good morning. Good morning. So Good morning. Here's the front page of the paper this morning. It says, forget the National Guard, send in the moms. They're calling you hero mom. Do you feel like a hero mom this morning? I don't. I don't. Because what was your intention? My intention was just to um, get my son and have him be safe. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I knew that was, um, that whole thing was not safe. It wasn't safe at all. What's <laughs> remarkable is this, and for me, yeah. is he clearly had uh, respect and fear of you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, because as you were pushing him and, and doing that sort of right hook you had, uh, <laughs> he was backing off. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. what was he saying to you? Mom, 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 okay, mom, okay, mom. You know, and I was pretty much just telling him, you know, how dare you do this? If he, I actually went to view um, Freddie Gray's funeral, mm -hmm. um, um, body, and if he wanted to do that, I would allow him to. Mm -hmm. You know, even if he wanted to um, stay home from school to go to the funeral, I would allow him to do that. Mm -hmm. But for him to do what he was doing, it was just unacceptable. But the way that you were striking him, mm -hmm. you opened up a can of whoop-ass on him the way I was looking at it. That clearly was not the first time that you've had that interaction with him, is it? No. Um, like I Tell said, us about him. Um, like I stated before, he has been in trouble before. And um, he knows right from wrong. Um, he, he, he's just like the other teenagers that doesn't have the perfect relationship with the police officers in Baltimore City. Mm. But you will not be throwing rocks and stones at police officers. Mm -hmm. At some point, um, who's to say that they don't have to come and protect me from mm -hmm. something? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and they might not want to, knowing that you're bringing harm to them. Mm -hmm. Two wrongs don't make a right. So at mm -hmm. the end of the day, I just wanted to make sure my son, I had gotten my son home.
of the rapist racist. As the first phase of the trial of police officer Daniel Holdsclaw comes to a close, one is forced to take stock of what the trial and its coverage means. Holdsclaw, a 28-year-old white Oklahoma cop, was recently convicted of 18 charges of sexual assault, rape, sodomy, and related offenses in the targeting and raping of some 13 black women, from teens to a woman in her 50s. An Oklahoma jury recommended the man be sentenced to some 260-plus years in prison. If you blinked, however, you would have missed it. A serial rapist of 13 females. When isn't that a story? When the 13 women are black women. Only one cable network, the black-owned TV1 news program, hosted by former CNN contributor Roland Martin, covered the case using internet reports from persons in court. No one else. Not one. Why not? Apparently, black lives don't matter. Holtzclaw used his uniform, his badge, his service revolver, to stop, intimidate, and rape over a dozen women. Sometimes, in his own patrol vehicle. And amazingly, he raped a teenager on her porch. And people wonder why cops can't be trusted. It took DNA and GPS evidence to bust this dude. But how can anyone contemplate something so sick? Easy. Most of the victims were poor black women. Some charged with being sex workers. Others charged with being drug violators. In other words, the vulnerable. This cop chose those who he knew had no social power and little ability to resist. And media silence reinforced that negative narrative by belittling the worth of these women. If they had covered it, they would have cast a harsh national light on police practices. They chose not to. Like a cop standing over a body in the road, they essentially said, hey, keep on moving. There's nothing to see here. Keep moving. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. New rule, as long as Putin is taking Syria off our hands, we should ask him if he'd also like to handle Cosby. <laughs> Because obviously everything we try just makes them stronger, so... Come on, Vlad, we know you own poison. If there was ever a guy who deserved a little something slipped in his drink. Plenty of fat, uniformed rats with below-average-sized cocks that slither through cell locks in the night. Lactating tits being licked left and right. Plenty of coochie burning with desire, like black churches in the South. Black prayers and pussy on fire. This is what makes this whole thing disturbing. As of this morning, tensions are obviously running high from what happened in South Carolina. But as of this morning, right here in Memphis, police got word that a local church, that a deacon found a bullet hole in the building. 2015. Lock the, uh, you, Effie, lock the side door over there. Thursday night Bible study takes a terrifying turn when a man shows up screaming obscenities and declaring, I'll kill you in words. And all you are going to get killed tonight, and you has messed our country up. 2015. An overnight church fire has been ruled an arson, and now investigators are working to find out 
if it's a hate crime. That fire happened at Briar Creek Church Baptist in East Charlotte. NBC Charlotte reporter Tony Burbeck is live at the church tonight with more on the story for us. Tony? And Sonia, let's get straight to showing you some of the damage here. I'm going to step out of the way. You can see the roof of the church's classroom education area. Yeah, it's gone altogether. An estimated quarter million dollars damage here. Of course, the big question tonight remains who would do this and why? 2015. Macon Bib Fire Chief Marvin Riggins says the fire that gutted a church today appears to be suspicious. 2015. We're talking about the FBI launching an investigation into fire set at seven different African American churches in seven days. So far, none of the blazes have been labeled as hate crimes, but investigators say at least three fires were caused by arson. The fires began on June 21st, days after the Charleston massacre, June 17th, and have occurred in six different states in Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and Ohio. A black church in South Carolina was the latest to catch fire. The blaze on Tuesday at the Mount Zion African Methodist Church in Greeleyville may have been triggered by lightning. Twenty years ago, the church was burned to the ground by members of the Ku Klux Klan. Meanwhile, in Knoxville, Tennessee, a fire at the Seventh-day Adventist Church was determined to be arson. A reporter at local station WVLT spoke to church elder Marshall Henley. Two different fires were started at College Hill Seventh-day Adventists last night. One at a side entrance to the church, where churchgoers say it appears someone set fire to bales of hay right outside the doors. The church van was also set on fire, and to make matters worse, the church only got the van about six months ago. It was vital to a lot of the church's community outreach projects. Some of those will now have to be placed on hold because they believe that van is a total loss. Another fire on June 23rd of the predominantly black God's Power Church of Christ in Macon, Georgia, was also reportedly set on purpose. Then on June 24th, there was the fire at the Fruitland Presbyterian Church in Gibson County, Tennessee, that was suspected to have been caused by lightning. The same day, there was a three-alarm fire at Briar Creek Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Local station WBTV spoke to the church's pastor, Mannix Kinsey. When I got here, I was even amazed to see that the flames were so high. And, you know, of course, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this church is going to be destroyed. The estimated damage is more than $250,000. The pastor of three years is grateful brick and mortar was all that was ruined. A life was not lost. You know, that the buildings can be repaired. They can be built over. While the pastor deals with this fire, he also has to deal with the fact this may be a hate crime. We're still talking about the same issue, and this is 2015. 2015. Over 10 days, six predominantly black churches have been set ablaze in the St. Louis area of Missouri. The first fire was set October 8th at the Bethel Non-Denominational Church. Then three more churches were targeted, New Northside Missionary Baptist Church, St. Augustine Catholic Church, and the New Testament Church of Christ. On Saturday, the New Life Missionary Baptist Church became the latest to be attacked. St. Louis Fire Captain Garen Mosby said there's no doubt the fires are deliberate. It is arson. It's, these are being intentionally set. Um, you know, they're at doors. These things aren't, uh, it isn't spontaneous combustion, so they're not occurring on their own. All the fires were set within a three-mile radius of northern St. Louis. The area includes Ferguson, where the police killing of unarmed teen Michael Brown set off protests in a national movement more than a year ago. The burnings come after a series of fires at African-American churches across the South following the Charleston Church massacre in June. Three of those fires were ruled as 
arson. 2015. Two white supremacist felons in Virginia have been charged with trying to illegally purchase firearms and explosives to use in attacks on Jewish synagogues and black churches. Robert C. Doyle and Ronald Beasley Cheney III were arrested Sunday after Doyle allegedly placed an order for weapons with an undercover FBI agent posing as, as an illegal arms dealer. A third man, Charles Haldeman, also faces federal charges for plans with Doyle and Cheney to commit robbery, murder, and other crimes in order to purchase land and stockpile weapons for the, quote, upcoming race war. A hearing is set for Thursday in Richmond. Joining me on our panel, Dr. Julian Malvo, economist and president emerita of Bennett College, David Swirlick, assistant editor at the Washington Post, Laura Coates, former federal prosecutor. All right, folks, um, this, this is a perfect example of, I love the people who still go through this whole deal of, you know, know what's happening, the whole post-racial world we're living in. <laughs> uh, you see people blasting. Uh, students at the University of Missouri will talk about later saying that this is their feeling and how they're feeling. Uh, but the reality is race still exists. There's still a hate in this country, even with a black president. So all those folks who thought that was just going to somehow just calm and change everything, they're nuts. They're more than nuts. Um, and they need to be incarcerated, not only incarcerated, perhaps institutionalized. Uh, Dr. Maya Angelou used to always talk to people about racism being a mental illness. And I think it is. But more than that, I, you know, you got to give the FBI, you know, a shout out. They were on top of this. We've had, you know, we've had instances where they haven't been on top of it. So this makes a lot of sense. But to say you want to bomb churches and synagogues, churches and synagogues, suggests that not only is there virulent hatred, mm -hmm. a racial hatred, anti-Semitism, but you also really have some white people who are not budging. I used to always think, Roland, that younger white people, you know, I don't mind old white racists because they were raised that way. I don't say I don't mind them, but, <laughs> you know, you figure they were raised that way. But when you get people who are under 40, they have no business. No, but 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 here's the deal, though. You, again, Jim Crow had, had Jim Crow had kids and grandkids. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history, but he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches, not random, but as a means of control, a way to terrorize and oppress. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion. An act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. Well, um, certainly I think that there is no doubt that what occurred um, 
you know, came about because of racism, white supremacy. You, you have a, a young adult black, white male saying that uh, he wanted to kill black people and saying black men rape white women and that uh, black people were taking over the country. I don't know whether he was making reference to the fact that uh, the country is supposed to now be run by the first black president. And so, without a doubt, uh, this falls within our understanding of racism, white supremacy, certainly. But as I have watched um, the programs on CNN and other channels, I really found myself because the people at the church and uh, many other people commenting, political figures and uh, television figures were talking about how wonderful it was that black and white people were together in the church and the black and white people were singing We Shall Overcome and holding hands and uh, swaying back and forth. And I found myself feeling nauseated, if I really speak the truth, and um, disgusted. And I just thought that after, after Ferguson, you have black and white people marching together, and then you have another event. And then you have the events in Baltimore, and you have black people and white people marching together, and everybody's saying how wonderful that people are getting together. And I jotted a note down, and Monday, this is Thursday, and by Monday, everybody will be back again playing their part in the system of racism and white supremacy, either as people who classify themselves as white or the people that the whites classify as the black people who are the victims of racism and white supremacy. And I know that people hearing me might say, oh, how can she say that? Isn't it wonderful The people are all holding hands? like Martin Luther King wanted them to do. You see, but the very fact that we go from event to event, and I'm certain that because this young man not only killed black people, but, I mean, it's just disgusting that there were six black women and three black men who were killed, and an 87-year-old black woman was killed, and I said, when are we as black people going to have the level of self-respect and courage to really come out of the slave role, slave obey your master, turn the other cheek, make certain you turn the other cheek and you'll get your reward in heaven. And that's a slave role. We haven't maybe thought about it in those terms. But, for example, people never, and there'll, you know, there'll be black people coming forward and saying they forgive the shooter. 
that they forgive and they think this is the thing to do. I mean, that's the cycle of events as far as we are concerned. And I said, no, this is, this is highly incorrect. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Uh, today's date, since we are broadcasting uh, for me, is late in the evening. Uh, for people on the East Coast, uh, it is already a new year, 2016, January 1st. Uh, for people like myself who are on the West Coast uh, or even Mountain Time, uh, it is still 2015, December 31st. Uh, thanks for the folks tuning in for our 2015 year in review. Uh, to start the broadcast, um, we just heard the voice of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Uh, that was from her visit to the cows uh, 24 hours after the massacre at Emanuel AME Church uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, someone commented on my Facebook page. I uh, got an email as well uh, that someone, I guess, had posted on Facebook that Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, uh, that she uh, currently uh, has been hospitalized and is in critical condition in Washington, D.C. Uh, people asked if I could confirm this, and I cannot. Obviously, I'm thousands of miles uh, from Washington, D.C. I'm in Washington State. Uh, I talked to Dr. Welsing a couple times this month, uh, but it's been about a week or so since I spoke with her. I, at that time, it was her sister, uh, she said, that was uh, not doing well, and she had you know, serious concerns about her sister and had been going to check on her, uh, her health and well-being, uh, not Dr. Welsing herself. Uh, so I will uh, make an effort to give her a ring tomorrow just to, to verify to see if this is correct. Uh, if it is accurate that it is indeed Dr. Welsing uh, who has been hospitalized, I definitely hope that uh, for people that, you know, are into uh, saying a prayer or taking a moment uh, to uh, just send some constructive energy, positive energy uh, to her and hoping that she recuperates, uh, heals quickly and is able to get back to doing her much-needed, uh, vital, uh, life-saving work. Uh, and just, you know, a reminder, if anything, about us being serious and, and valuing uh, black people like Dr. Welsing, who has uh, really invested her uh, life currency uh, in trying to help black people as best she can and doing as much uh, with her immense talents, uh, immense skill uh, to solve the problem of white supremacy, racism, uh, and to really value these folks while we're while they're here. Uh, you just never know uh, what could happen under the system of white supremacy. But I cannot uh, verify. I just found out about it right when we went on air, and I will uh, give her a call tomorrow to uh, see uh, if that's true or not. That said, somber note to uh, begin things, but uh, folks would like to uh, dial in to participate. Again, this is a 2015 review of what happened over the past uh, 12 months under the system of white supremacy. Uh, observations, patterns, things that stood out uh, and where we think, you know, things will be going uh, in 2016. If you would like to dial in to participate, the number is 641 715 Three six four zero, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. 
press star six if you would like to participate. The number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. I will just say briefly before I get to some of the folks uh, who are on the line who have a hand up already. uh, That segment at the end with Dr. Welsing, uh, again, to emphasize that was 24 hours uh, after the shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. The shooting was on uh, June 17th and Dr. Welsing was on the program on June 18th. uh, And when she made those comments about the typical pattern about, you know, us black people forgiving uh, acts of white terrorism, that was before the hearing where I think that a lot of people heard it was kind of infamous where some of the victims, uh, family members, uh, said that, you know, we forgive you and all that. We talked about that. It was, you know, played uh, over and over and over again over the past six months or so. But Dr. Welsing had said all of that before that even happened, uh, which was on June 19th. I thought that was hugely important as well. Uh, the only comment that I will make, uh, this is a uh, new year. I know a lot of people are out partying, gallivanting, Consuming alcoholic beverages, probably around intoxicated whites and intox and or intoxicated victims of racism Uh, and to be here and to listen to uh, 80 minutes of audio clips of news about the past 12 months is not exactly the most appealing way to spend what they call uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, my assessment is that if there is a system of white supremacy, terrorism, war against black people, um, we should be really serious. That should be reflected in the way that we use our time and energy. And we should be very serious about going uh, to solve this problem immediately. Uh, For me, we've been doing this year in review uh, for a few years now uh, and kind of reflecting and looking back at some of the major events uh, over the past year. Uh, we've been doing it for several years. And uh, for me, I've, I've found it to be very constructive because uh, I think a lot of things happen and uh, your memory, you, you forget things. You're not thinking of it. You move on. So many different things happen, particularly traumatic, violent, terroristic events uh, dealing with black people that you just forget about things that happened eight months ago, 10 months ago at the beginning of the year that, you know, just are not in the forefront of your mind anymore. Uh, I think it can be very constructive in terms of evaluating, seeing patterns uh, and just seeing the totality uh, of the war that is being waged against the black people, especially non-white people in total, uh, looking at it from a local, national and global perspective. Uh, and I can see for myself on a personal note, um, just putting the clips together, uh, it takes you know quite a bit of time to kind of go back and evaluate and, and pick out you know what I think the most important things that happened or certainly you can't get everything, but at least trying uh, to get some of the most significant events uh, that we went through. Uh, that just hearing all of that, reviewing all of that, hearing all of that together, uh, I have not, in the time that we've been doing this, had a feeling of, wow, uh, it really felt like there was an increase uh, as though racists, white supremacists intensified uh, the attack on black people, non-white people. Just hearing that, it, it seemed 
greater. I do not recall feeling this way. And we've done other year in review programs. I did not have that feeling. Even last year when it was Ferguson and Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, all that stuff that happened last year, Marlene Pinnock, uh, the trial with Renisha McBride uh, being killed uh, 2013, when it was the uh, murder trial for Trayvon Martin and a lot of the other things that happened then Jordan Davis was killed then as well. John, uh, Jonathan Farrell was killed then as well. The out of a lot of the other big events that took place uh, in 2013. I just did not have that same feeling looking at the totality of everything uh, that happened. Uh, And Uh, I know the theme song that a lot of people said, uh, Kendrick Lamar's, uh, we're going to be all right. Uh, And they had a lot of videos that, you know, went viral where people, black people were out protesting police misconduct and terrorism against black people. And they were chanting that song. And he even commented on it. And I guess people were saying that it gave them an optimistic feel. Uh, I did not feel optimistic at all. And that was not, you know, a despair and hopelessness. And, you know, let's lay down and get up, give up. But I mean, it did not feel good at all. Just looking again at the totality of everything that happened. Now, maybe I'm in error. Maybe I just missed out on a lot of the great things that uh, black people are accomplishing and making lots and lots of progress against this problem so that we will not have 365 days like we just experienced in 2015. Maybe that is taking place and Gus just missed it. And I just don't know what I'm talking about. That could be totally valid. But unless I missed my guess, it looks horrendous going into 2016. Uh, For the folks that uh, are calling in, chiming in, if you have information to the contrary, if I just missed out, if you have constructive things that, you know, look, hey, we, we are making major strides Uh, We are are making huge constructive progress and 2016 is looking like it's going to be way better. We're not going to have a lot of these same problems and horrendous terroristic acts that we had to talk about and deal with in 2015. We're not going to have that for 2016. Please get on the line. I'll give the number again. The number is six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero. And the code is five, six, four, nine, four, three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up line is open and I'm, I'm very serious. I'm not being facetious. I'm not joking. If you have constructive information that, you know, hey, we're making progress and we're not going to go through this again. Uh, 2016, we need to get that front and center. Uh, but other than that, observations, uh, things that stood out, patterns, uh, things that you will remember, major lessons. Uh, definitely want to get that in. Uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Feel free to chime in. Good evening. Matt, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, good evening to all. Good evening, Gus. Um, I guess happy um, what white people made up 2015. I guess that's what it is because they got the towel. So happy 2016 to all. Um It'll be there shortly, Gus. Um, man, I hope Dr. Welsing, I hope nothing happened to her. And if something did, I hope she's fine. Also heard that um, Dr. Delbert Blair was in the hospital as well. I know he's been sick. Um, and Gus's words, they did a masterful job this year. I mean, I was going through articles earlier trying to figure out what you were going to put on the show. I mean, you, you could have probably did the whole show with just uh, clips. I mean, it's... Yeah, good riddance to 2015, and um, unfortunately, 
this is going to be an even bigger year this year. This is Obama's last year. Thank God, but I expect a total turn up by the white supremacists before he goes. And, um, you know, they capped this year off with a bing. Um, just the last four, maybe five weeks, uh, we had Tamir Rice. You know, nothing going to happen. Sandra Bland, nothing going to happen. Freddie Gray, nothing's going to happen. Laquan McDonald, nothing's going to happen. Uh, the other kid in Chicago, Ronald Johnson, nothing's going to happen. Uh, all on tape. This was the year to tape. <laughs> they didn't work, though. Um, just masterful job. And to cap it all off, man, I thought I saw it all. But when I saw Bill Cosby tripping into the courtroom, I mean, it's like ruined my whole childhood, man. I mean, that was just the grand finale. It was like, we really going to stick it to these niggas this year. Um, a bad year for teachers. And t- seven years for a test scandal. And you give this kid, Ethan Couch, eight years probation for killing people. And he flees the country anyway. They should call that a fluenza. I mean, they was trying to pass the kids. And, um, man... Um, high school students didn't get it no better, getting beat up on TV by their mothers and um, slammed in the classroom by cops. And then college students, I mean, whew, they got their first real dose of reality in the real world this year. They've realized that they're going to have a whole life of white supremacy to deal with. And unfortunately, they got a bigger dose of deception because they had a whole bunch of white people marching with them, unfortunately. So I don't see too much of a change coming. Um, Missouri football team, though, they get the, to me the men's 2015 Black Self-Respect Award for not playing. I mean, they was adamant. They, they, I mean, you're not going to get changed, but, I mean, I would love to see professional athletes do the same thing. Um, uh, by the way, Gus, I spoke to, to Ross earlier. He's um, forced to go to the plantation, so he said he won't be able to participate today. He has to show up at the plantation tomorrow. But he wanted me to mention something about Dr. Ben, and I'm glad that you did in the clips. So I think he'll be happy when he hears the archives. Uh, the story about Haiti, you know, and DR, that was one of the saddest things I heard this year. And um, it was it's strange because just yesterday my, my wife's sister called and um, ICE arrested her child's father. He's Jamaican. He's been here since he was 14, and um, he's being deported now. He's he's almost 40 now. So he, he doesn't even know family there. So, you know, that's just how they do everywhere. It's not just there, um, black people everywhere. And if you think you got a little whiteness in you, you're going to act white. It's just unfortunate. Um, Daniel Holtzclaw, calf justice, 18 out of 36 accounts. Um, but to me, those women that testified against them, they get the, female 2015 black self-respect award because that took a lot of courage to walk into a courtroom in an arms jumpsuit knowing you're already being prejudged and, and stand there and tell the truth and tell that this racist raped you that was a lot of courage and that that was stood up for something i mean he didn't get a lot of victories this year but i mean if they really do give him i don't think he's going to get the 263 years i think he's going to get the 22 but if he does get that, we'll be starting off the year good. Um, the church burnings was huge. It was so many. And um, that Walter Scott shooting was the worst thing I think I ever saw. And um, I, I think that cop will get off. I saw the Revise video 
on um, his lawyer talking about it one night on CNN and yeah, and, and, and all white jewelry and pitchfork Ben State, he's gonna get off. Um, Dylan Roof, that was the story of the year. Charleston Massacre is an understatement. Um, sounds like a mob hit or something like the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. You know, now that was a Charleston terrorist attack. I mean, that was like 9-11. Um, Dylan Roof should be sent to Guantanamo Bay. Like a terrorist would be waterboarding. And, um, you know, other than that, I'm not going to say too much more. I just hope that um, Dr. Welsing, nothing's wrong with her. And um, I wish everyone a better year, hopefully. Um, I wish next year we didn't have none of these stories, but I got a feeling next year you're going to be saying, Gus, oh, man, this was worse than last year. I'll mute my mind. Appreciate that, Thomas in New York. Uh, other folks uh, who had a hand up, if y'all had comments you wanted to get in, feel free. I see other people with uh, hands up. I'm not sure if they uh, are waiting or what have you, but let's go ahead and comment if you uh, did dial in and you have uh, a hand up uh, if you have things that you'd like to share. Wacky. That is definitely one of my pet peeve lists when people call in and, and put their hand up and then they don't comment. I know some people sometimes they're in noisy environments, so they have to wait till they can get to a, a quiet spot. But uh, yeah, <laughs> people uh, get out of the spectator mode so we can rock and roll and, and uh, folks can share. Uh, while folks, uh, I guess, are waiting to, to do their thing, if you hit your mute button, we cannot hear you. Uh, while folks are uh, waiting, one of the things that I would encourage uh, people to be mindful of as we proceed uh, 2016 uh, with Khalif Browder, uh, that case, the young black male in New York who uh, took his own life. But that is all the way racist man, racist woman, racist child are to blame uh, for his false imprisonment. He ended up uh, having three years, spending three years. Uh, in greater confinement, Rikers Island, unjustly for a backpack, no less. Now, that's one. I mean, you contrast that with Ethan Couch, who killed people, and he gets no jail time. Uh, Khalif Browder, he was never even convicted. Didn't kill anybody, just a backpack. Accused of stealing a backpack and three years of his life taken away. Uh, but him uh, committing suicide this year. Um, I would encourage black people to be especially mindful uh, about mental health. Uh, again, unless I am in error to me, it looks like a uh, racist man, racist woman, uh, racist child. They are greatly intensifying uh, their warfare and terrorism against black people uh, in all areas of people activity. Uh, and in my view, uh, that is going to have a huge impact uh, on our mental health, how we're functioning. It already has. Racism does this anyway, but I just, with them, in my view, intensifying what they're doing, you're going to see greater effects on the victims. And 
Uh, I know for myself, one of the least popular essays that I wrote this year on uh, Sandra Bland, uh, Kimberly Randall King, uh, these suicides that happened uh, in prison. Uh, I think uh, Darnell Chapman uh, was another uh, victim uh, in Alabama, black female who also uh, reportedly took her own life in greater confinement. Uh, that was one uh, Kendra Darnell Chapman. That's her full name. That was one of the other, uh, as I said, that was one of the least popular reports that I wrote. But beyond me personally, I saw other black people, black journalists who wrote about these incidents. And they had the same stance that I took that regardless of what happened, all of this is racism. White supremacy is to blame for all of these deaths. That being said, white supremacy compromises the mental health of black people. And that's something that should not be underestimated you can look at the Khalif Browder uh, incident as well it should not be underestimated and that's something that we should not minimize we should really keep that in the forefront of our thoughts uh, moving forward and just being mindful of ourselves if we're feeling depressed uh, unhappy just uh, totally hopeless about things really be mindful about that and other people that you care about really keep an eye out for that sort of thing because I think uh, racists are just hammering us and I think for a lot of us it, it just with these conditions you can get to that point where you feel discouraged and just feel like you just are not going to be able to improve your situation I would uh, definitely encourage folks to keep that uh, as as a main priority moving forward in 2016 hopefully we can continue and have more broadcasts and programs uh, to keep that uh, as something that people are thinking about and looking for resources uh, and how you can help combat that on uh, getting some mental health professionals, Dr. Welsing, the work that she's done. We've had others, uh, Dr. Marva Robinson down uh, in Missouri. She's uh, president of the Association of Black Psychologists uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. We had her on several times, actually, uh, to talk about the work that she was doing after Ferguson and working with black people there who had just been traumatized with, you know, a year and a half now of violence and no indictments and everything that was associated. So uh, that's something that definitely uh, stuck out to me and hopefully we'll be able to do invest more time I'm uh, covering that and thinking about that, processing that for 2016. But I think that's that's hugely important uh, moving forward. Uh, any of the other folks that dialed in with a hand up, y'all have comments you want to make sure you got in? Greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Uh, I was just uh, thinking about a few things, uh, starting with... Uh, Number one, you know, with the uh, technology of uh, uh, cameras everywhere and uh, their own enforcement officials' uh, lapels and and on the hoods of their cars and and even uh, with the advent of non-white white victims having uh, the means to. Uh, audio visually record uh uh things uh i would say uh the past past year 2015 i mean i'm in, I'm in eastern eastern uh, standard time so it's already 2016 uh in this part of the world uh i would say that it hasn't shown <laughs> that uh that technology has has uh helped uh non white black people uh in the aspect of of uh, uh saying well okay well, this proves that this uh 
did not go well and it was incorrect. Uh, uh, just kind of like answering your question that you asked at the beginning of the, uh, or challenge, if you will, that you, uh, uh, gave us in the beginning of the the, uh, the broadcast. Uh, no, there there has not be have shown any any improvement uh, over the past uh, uh, twelve months. So I've been told uh, in that light, uh, as far as uh, recordings or any type of audiovisual uh, uh, equipment. Uh, also, was just doing a little bit of uh, uh, social math, uh, and I'm thinking any event of non-white people not focusing in the best way that they could on the system of racism, white supremacy, and therefore heading in a direction of attempting to solve that problem. I think what is, what, what is happening more and more, it warrants that we negatively impact one another. I could be wrong about that, but, but if that makes sense to, uh, 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 anybody, please let me know. Cause it, it makes sense to me. If, if you're not, if you're not really, serious about focusing on the system of racism and white supremacy as a collective what what the results is going to be that you're going to be acting you're going to be focusing negatively you have a negative impact on each other that's what I'm saying and that kind of like to me explains a lot of the uh, the issues that goes around like in Chicago uh well, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to mention about any one particular place, but uh, because even where I'm at, uh, where the area where I grew up at, uh, they uh, had a uh, uh, murder where someone shot up a house, and and in turn, a uh, nine or ten year old was killed in in the in the exchange of gunfire. And uh, so I'm just thinking that 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 is based on the results, if you don't focus in the direction uh, of where all of these things start from, which is the system of racial life permission, then you, you're only going to get worse and worse with yourselves. Uh, does that make any sense? Uh, but uh, anyway, that's, that's all I have uh, to, to uh, talk about uh, right now. Thank you. Definitely makes sense to me. I know Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, uh, I think she, 2013, when she was on the program, she said uh, our reflexive response to white supremacy racism is to go upside the head of another black person. Um, and to me, that's why on this program I say consistently the problem is white people. The problem is white people. The problem is white people. I think any time that you, we, lose sight uh, of whites being culpable, being most to blame for all of the problems that black people are experiencing, even our behavior and why we function the way that we do, myself included, uh, it invariably, predictably, it's going to be black people are whack. If, if white people are not to blame, then black, excuse me, black people are whack 
and we suck. And I've already seen where that that happens all the time. I really I hope that's one of the things that we can uh, work on improving uh, through 2016, uh, trying to reduce that tendency of shifting the blame for our predicament away from racist man, racist woman, racist child to black people suck. Black people are stupid. Uh, it's black people's fault that all of these things are, are messed up and Sandra Bland and, you know, all the other things that happen. Uh, it, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, our retired firefighter in Florida. And as I said, hopefully we can correct that as we move forward. 2016, uh, the other folks that dialed in with a hand up should also uh, be with us. If y'all had commentary. Mary Hurt? Yes, ma'am. Um, good evening, uh, guys, and to the callers. Um, I'm calling from Detroit, and I just wanted to um, chime in briefly. I just arrived at my 40 years on this planet, and I'm so thankful that I stumbled across this program. Um, I am just thankful that I am understanding more and more every day that white people are the problem. They are not ignorant of this, of racism, white supremacy, and they are not going to willingly stop practicing mistreatment of anyone who is not white. Um, over this year, constantly, it has been shown, proven to me that um, this is going to continue as far as white people are concerned. And I have, um, I have been through many challenges this year, um, and I, have, uh, I commented a couple times on workplace racism, and I'm thankful that I have... Um, found another stream of income, I'll just say that, where I am committed and going to set up just just trying to invest in this program because it has been so instrumental um, to help me in my growth and development and just trying to be less confused. Um, and I just, I mean, I just encourage or just want to thank you, Gus, uh, for just your commitment for just showing up, you know, every, just every opportunity you have for um, just giving us information and just opportunities to express ourselves and, and to discuss just what we've been, you know, what we, what we go through. Um, I, I definitely want to send my prayers out to Dr. Welsing. Um, and um, pouring my energy into her healing and well-being. But um, 2015 and just, just, just being around white people, I, I get it. I'm, I'm, I, and I'm striving to get it more and more each day that uh, any idea of me thinking that they're going to change or feel bad or, or, or do it themselves, that's out the door. Um, more and more each day, 
it's on us. It's on me. It's on, uh, it's my responsibility. And I'm learning that it's my responsibility to, to become less confused, to become more aware and to, um, be accountable. Um, because they, they, they're making no apology for this system. It is what it is. And, and, and I get it. And I, like I said, I'm, I'm just thankful that now, um, when I had faced a situation where, you know, I lost my job and I was in a situation where I'm like, Oh goodness, what am I going to do? My priorities are shifted now. I, I I'm, I'm happy to prioritize things where I can invest in this program, where I can invest in, um, anything that's going to help me to be less confused and help others. So, um, I just want to thank you. I think my, my, my comment tonight overall is to say thank you for your commitment, Gus, and thank you for this program because it has been very, very, very um, key in my personal growth and development. And I'll mute myself. Appreciate that. Music to my ears, hearing a black person say, I'm going to hold myself accountable music to my ears i think most of the time when i i hear that word we are looking for another victim uh, to say i'm going to hold them accountable i don't like what they're doing or how they're responding to white supremacy i think anytime we get on the uh accountability uh and and checking in on somebody and how they're responding to racism white supremacy we should all start in the mirror I think that will definitely keep you occupied in terms of your time and energy. If if you want to hold somebody accountable for dealing with racism, white supremacy, man, get that mirror out. You will be uh, taken care of. Um, caller uh, in Canada should be with us uh, as well. Uh, caller in Canada, there's a lot of uh, background noise uh, on your end. Uh, so maybe if you I guess people might be celebrating in Canada, too. But if you can get to a, a quieter spot, that would be greatly appreciated we can uh, get your line open if you have uh, comments that you want to share uh definitely good to hear from you as well uh any of the other folks that that we have not heard from who had a hand up do y'all have anything uh, you want to share then i'll check back in with our caller in canada also see we still have some callers who are <laughs> taking their time again they might not be in uh they too might be in an area where people are being a bit uh rowdy uh for uh the new year and i would definitely say what i consistently say when we end the program sobriety would be best uh, i was out briefly today and i saw one too many enforcement officers uh out and about and they had the sirens on and were racing up and down the road and i said i'm gonna take myself back to the residence uh with due speed uh because it just did not look like uh, a constructive environment uh we're already in a system of white supremacy so i did not want any parts uh of that and you got a lot of intoxicated whites uh as well and i think even some people uh it's go out and, and shoot guns this is an excuse to go out and let off a few rounds uh to celebrate so just did not seem uh, constructive to me uh i will say also quickly cecil the lion uh he didn't make it to 2016 i think that was one of the important events that happened this year and direct, uh, directly related to racism white supremacy as well didn't get uh everything in the audio clips but uh shout out to cecil the lion uh also someone we lost uh 
during the past 12 months. Uh, I'll check in with our caller in Canada really quick as well. And then uh, for other folks, uh, even if you already shared, if you have other comments you want to get in, feel free. Caller in Canada, are you in a quiet spot? Let's see. Wait, is my background good? Much better. Good to hear from you, sir. Okay, yeah, I switched my headphones. Okay, beautiful. Okay, I switched my um, yeah, so one of the things I would say one of the callers said about, you know, not really focusing on white supremacy, I think that's something I hope that we get better at. I see one of the biggest problems I see is that there's too much arguing about which black people are more oppressed. Like black women are more oppressed, black gays are more oppressed, straight black men run a black patriarchy, all these types of, I, I generally see this, especially on, on Twitter and focusing on which black person is leading a movement. I think we should just learn that, as you always emphasize, white supremacy is the problem that we face and we need to learn to focus on that. I think on the Canadian side of things, I think we benefit in some ways from a lot of the mainstream discussions that are going on in the U.S. because prior to, I, I, now I don't know how many Canadians would agree with me on this, but you didn't really see a lot of race conversations in the public Canadian sphere until it really started coming into the U.S. So we've become a bit more emboldened to address racism here. So I hope that we can sort of establish more like constructive dialogue, such as like your show is really good at that. I really appreciate that about your show, that you actually have different black people from different parts of the world and other non-white peoples, because I find that's sometimes a problem when everyone thinks white supremacy only exists in America. So, yeah, those are my thoughts. Mm, absolutely. I think Dr. Tommy Curry, um, I almost want to say most of the time when he comes on the program, but I definitely know the last, his last, his most recent visit, which was in November, uh, that was something that he uh, really emphasized. Uh, the term he used, I think, was identity politics, where we get you know caught up yes arguing about exactly what you just said, you know, black gay people are mistreated more or ignored or black females are mistreated more, black males are mistreated more, that uh, everybody is a victim and we have a system of white supremacy in place uh, where all of us are being terrorized and let's just get back to trying to solve that problem as opposed to bickering amongst ourselves about who's mistreated more or who should get credit. Uh, who should be spotlighted this week and that sort of thing and, and just really trying to solve this problem so that none of us uh, are being mistreated and, and then we can go about doing more constructive things than, than just looking at the ruins that white people have made of our lives and the planet. I definitely agree. That's why I hope maybe Black Lives Matter changes their about page to fighting white supremacy, not black nationalism. I think he commented on that during the compensatory call-in last weekend, uh, giving more detail on that. More clarity, more clarity. Hopefully that will come in in 2016. Um, Maybe, I'm hoping. More clarity, and I guess I'll, I'll take this moment to say more clarity and uh, courage. I think that was something that Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, where she talked about courage and black self-respect to be honest and to be truthful um, because I hadn't I hadn't went back to hear uh, her commentary uh, I'm just muting the caller in Canada really quick because I can I can still hear quite a bit of the uh, commotion in the background but I'm on a mute soon as I finish talking um, but I hadn't heard that uh, since probably since it aired originally back in June but uh, in that segment where she was just talking about having the black self-respect 
uh, to be honest uh, about the terrorism that is being waged uh, on black people. And, and I really appreciated. I had totally forgotten that she had said that she felt nauseated uh, seeing within 24 hours of uh, the terrorist assault uh, at uh, Mother Emanuel AME in Charleston. Uh, seeing, you know, all of these white people and black people holding hands. And this was supposed to be uh, great and healing. And, and this just continued. The New York Times did a big piece where it almost has become like a tourist attraction where you got whites from all over who come down. Let's go to, to AME and have our picture taken with the parishioners and go hug on a black person. This is great. I mean, disgusting. I, I would hope that more of us that we uh, and again, have the courage because white people can and do inflict a lot of damage on black people just for talking honestly about white supremacy. I hope more of us will have the courage uh, and the black self-respect to be truthful, to be accurate, to be honest. Uh, we talk about this problem and to use the best possible terms that we're not talking uh, about white privilege, uh, that that just it totally uh, dilutes what we're talking about. We're not being honest on uh, the same thing that we have a problem with diversity and racial healing and just all of these nonsense words. And many of them that white people promote uh, and come up with uh, and say, yes, you, you can talk about this problem, but you got to use these terms. And if you don't, uh, well, then you're not going to be you're not going to get a job. or We're not going to publish your book or we're not going to fund your film project or whatever else, whatever other endeavors uh, we're trying to do. I would hope more of us have the courage, if anything, just thinking of what happened at Charleston. Uh, you can pick any incident thinking of what happened to Sandra Bland, thinking of what happened to Renisha McBride, thinking of what happened to that young black girl, uh, teen teenage black girl in Charleston who was slammed. Any, pick any incident, Laquan McDonald, pick any incident anywhere in the world. What's going on in the uh, Dominican Republic, eviction of those uh, black people. They're saying that they're quote unquote Haitian. So you got to get out of our, our area of the world. Any of those incidents, just out of respect for what they went through as victims. I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to try to dilute this and say that the problem with Sandra Bland was diversity. I'm not going to say that what we had at Mother Emanuel AME was a white privilege. No, that's not the problem. And again, hopefully we can manifest that 2016. I'm going to have the courage to be accurate and honest anytime, any place, anyone that I'm talking to about racism, white supremacy. We're going to be accurate, honest, use the best possible terms to describe this problem. That is counter-racism. Uh, other folks, even if you commented before, if you had comments you want to make sure you got in, uh, feel free. Man, that was so that was so eloquently um, put, Gus. Man, um, right. yep, <laughs> that was so eloquently put. Man, to go on with firefighters' question, man. Um, Listen, I say, man, white people are focused when it comes down to practicing racism. They all get it. They look at each other. They, you can see it. They all they, they have a telekinesis when it comes to it. I witness it all the time. Every time I, can, I sit it, I just look, sit back and watch them. And they could just look and they could be talking and they're making eye contact with the other one. They're focused. And we don't have that focus. You know, we... We tend to to play it like a game, you know, like it's, it's not, you know, we, we have to really 
stay focused. And I wish that would be one of the things that we all could just wake up one day and everyone's focused on that problem because I see racism in everything. Uh, I missed your show on Rocky. That was great. I was listening to that earlier before this came on, and I said, wow. But I, I remember sitting up in the movie theater cheering, Rocky, Rocky. I mean, he beat up the black dude. Oh, man. Man, it, it's sad, man, you know. But when you get it, like the, the lady said, you know, she gets it. Like, when you get it, it's like you start looking at everything differently and everyone differently. And I, I always try to try to talk accurately about racism to other black people. And um, I could kind of see that um, some of them get it. Some of them you could just tell that they just don't get it. But my hope is that one day they will. But um, um, one more thing I wanted to say for 2016, what I really hope, because, you know, you always say the Voltron effect. Um, I think it's a Voltron effect. Why there's not so many uh, white guests anymore, you know? I think they kind of um, started talking to each other. Don't go over there. Those aren't confused ones. Um, so I, I really wish you could get some white people, you know, um, to come on and speak accurately, you know, to, to tell the truth. And um, I'll meet my mom for I think. Oh, for sure. We uh we are totally hated, white people and non-white people, like totally uh, hated. And uh, people go online to write about how terrible uh, Gus and the cows and even some of our listeners, I suspect. But uh, tons of that uh, I have been talking with some white people. So hopefully we'll have some white people on uh, like soon, uh, like January soon. Um, but yeah, we, we are totally, uh, hated. I mean, we've been on seven years now. I thought, you know, I, I did not think we would be on for seven years, but I did think, you know, the longer that we stayed on, um, there would be more of that where white people do more. I mean, cause they communicate, they talk, uh, with one another and, oh my God, those niggas don't, you know, don't, don't go talking with them. But yeah, it's almost seven years. And I mean, we're closing in on 1500 programs. So, I mean, it's a lot of content uh at this point i think i think i said this year the lady in ireland uh that i think uh thomas in new york said he was listening to the archives uh lucy i think it's lucy mcdonald i might be messing up the uh last name but she was on uh in july this past summer uh and when i contacted her again she's in ireland when i contacted her she already knew uh, about the guy i was like oh yeah <laughs> i mean that is way way different uh playing field than what we started out with where you know nobody nobody knew the cows nobody knew gust and now you contact people in you know different parts of the world different countries whole different time zone and oh yeah i already know about you guys and and she's still coming in fact she should be back on um i was hoping we could have one in december but she was doing some project or what have you she said just to hit her in january and uh hopefully we can get her uh back on as well but yeah that that is what this was designed for was to have white people on the program people recommend our listeners recommend a lot of non-white people and not all of them uh, I'd say there, obviously, Dr. Welsing, many others, uh, there are a lot of non-white people. Uh, Dr. Delbert Blair has been on the program. There are a lot of non-white people, uh, black people who are a lot less confused and have great, helpful information uh, to share. Pam, uh, Christopher Everett, who did Wilmington on Fire, obviously that's true. But uh, I really, really uh, enjoy and look forward to opportunities to talk to the folks that are causing the problem. <laughs> I think that's how you learn. And that's where you get to put uh, a lot of your counter-racist skills to use, talking to racist man, racist woman. So, yeah, hopefully uh, we can get on that uh, for 2016 as well. Other folks uh, 
have comments that they wanted to get in? Yes, ma'am. If you could uh, speak up a little bit, that would be helpful, but we can hear you. Okay. I, I don't have my earphones on, so I ho- and I, I have it on speaker, but I the, the earphones don't work, so I hope there's not a lot of feedback in the background. Sorry for that. Oh, you're good so far. No no feedback, no distortion. Well, a little bit there, but mostly you're good. Mostly you're good. Okay. Um, the pattern I noticed over the the past year is um, I'm beginning to see how illegal aliens are even treated better than we are, and they're even surpassing us economically. And I I believe you know as more of the even the Syrian um, immigrants come over here or refugees come over here, they're going to be they're going to surpass us socially economically as well. So. I just wanted to say I've noticed that that pattern, and I'll also lift up prayers to uh, Dr. Welsing as well. Right on. Yeah, that's another part of being, in my view, just being accurate that black people are treated worse. It seems like that's another thing that is uh, not popular uh, to say, uh, certainly is not mainstream that, uh, yeah, we have a system of white supremacy, but it's not blacks and Latinos and all the other permutations uh, that they give. Everybody who is non-white is victimized. That is certainly true. Uh, But man, the folks who carry the label black, the darker you are, you are going to get it in every way, shape, form. And they even have statistics like that's not even saying anything that, you know, is, is radical or cannot be supported. Uh, they have statistics that show that black people, you're going to make less money even in comparison to other non-white, non-black people, uh, that you're going to be worse off than even they are. In fact, that's one of the things that I was going to say folks should uh, pay attention to uh, the quote-unquote refugee issue, because I think we've been talking about that even going back to last summer when they were saying that all these uh, non-white children were coming across the border last summer. Uh, but the murder trial for a Kai Gurley, that's another one on the same issue because he was shot and killed by a so-called uh, Asian male. Uh, that that's going to be another one where I think that issue uh, is going to come up and even white people trying to get conflict amongst non-white people. But that's that's one I would encourage folks to kind of be mindful of moving forward in 2016 to just see what happens with that case. But certainly I think that is, is super important. That's something I try to emphasize on this program. If you are a black person, you are going to be treated way worse uh, than any other group of non-white people uh, on the planet who are also victims, but they are not subjected to the same level of terrorism. Exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I, also, I will make sure I take time to add as well. Those churches, uh, that was huge. Not just the Charleston incident that, you know, did get a lot of attention. But I mean, all of those attacks at black churches, there were a lot of fires, too. But you heard in some of the clips where just white people went and were shooting at black churches. And they had video even where some white guy just went and was yelling, saying, I'm going to kill you niggers and banging on the door and threatening them and what have you. He was uh, detained. Uh, the white terrorist who did that, but that did not get very much attention at all. Now, there were some articles uh, in the Washington Post, uh, Democracy Now! I think they did a couple uh, reports. Time magazine uh, had a story, but I mean, 
if you could imagine if someone was going around, if there were like seven uh, synagogues or seven Catholic places of worship or anywhere where white go, seven uh, Protestant churches that were set on fire, uh, someone was coming and shooting at them. And particularly if somebody went to a white church and said, I don't like white people and started shooting, shot and killed non-white people. And then within 24 hours, someone went to other white uh, places of worship and shot up a whole bunch of white people or set the building on fire or whatever the case may be. Can you imagine the type of media coverage that there would have been like wall to wall media coverage, the outrage, the investigate, they would have had the CIA, the FBI, everybody would have been involved. That seemed to get hardly any attention at all. Like when I was looking at other people's lists for things that were important that happened in 2015 and they had goofy stuff on there like uh uh things that i didn't even think you know were very important films that came out star wars and just silliness uh on some of the lists in the presidential campaign i mean i guess you know that's important but i mean that that's not even got serious yet that'll be you know 2016 when they you know make their decisions about who's going to be selected uh for the next uh white house occupant but that was not listed at all uh the assaults on black churches that were just relentless and that's not even including the NAACP building that was bombed uh in Colorado at the beginning of the year uh, and that's that in my view, that's what I mean about the attack on black people specifically. And to me, what seems like it intensified tremendously uh, 2015, that just did not get very much attention at all. And they did report in St. Louis because there were uh, a series of attacks on black places of worship in the summer right after the Charleston incident. And then in October, there were about six, seven different fires in the St. Louis area. I played the segment in the audio uh, clips. Um, they did arrest and charge a black person in some of those fires and saying that this person, there was video evidence that their vehicle was in the vicinity of some of the fires and uh, that this black male, he had a gas can in his car and another container that smelled uh, of gasoline. And they think, you know, he he did this. I think that trial is going to be coming up as well. Even even if he did do it, I don't know. He hasn't been convicted of anything. Even with that being the case, I don't think he was charged with all of those incidents. Just the fact that it did not get that much attention at all, in my opinion, that is another huge aspect of white supremacy racism in terms of what white media, what they can focus your attention on and what they choose to ignore or not give very much attention to. And also why I would say it is extremely important that we invest time and energy looking at the news, being informed so that we know what's happening. Certainly the Daniel Holtzclaw case talked about that a lot, that that didn't get a lot of attention, but whites are phenomenal. They can have Bill Cosby's face everywhere about him even before he was charged with anything and talk bad about him every day and you don't hear a whisper about these church incidents or Daniel Holtzclaw or a myriad of other incidents that happen to black people on a constant basis that just wanted to make sure I got that in as well uh, the caller, other caller on the vote line did you have commentary you wanted to make sure you got in hello can you hear me yes ma'am Oh, good. Okay, I'm talking to, into the computer. I don't know. Um, I just wanted to add to, I think, a recent recent um, caller. She said how the uh, illegal aliens are going to, like, I guess, become priority. Um, this past semester, because I'm still at school, I was in the office with two white prof- 
two white teachers, they're not professors, two white teachers talking about something else. Then a white professor came in, and I was teaching accounting, and he was talking about how the big accounting firms, they're, four, they're about four, they're looking for specifically Asian people because the perception is, is that they work harder, which, of course, I know from experience to not be true because I see them work. Um, so I just want to agree to that, and that was like a little white insight because I don't know. I think he was going to say what he wanted to say anyway. I just so happened to be standing there, and I guess he was like, well, I don't really care about her, and she's not going into that. She's going into academics, so that's not her problem. And I guess I guess they think I'm not going to tell the other black students or whatever. I don't know. But that is true. That's all. Thank you. Oh, for sure. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. I'm even reminded, I think it was Puff. I'm, if I'm uh, confused about the caller who shared this information, but I'm pretty sure it was Puff because it was pretty recent. Um, black female caller, she's been dialing for a while. Um, but she said that uh, one of the reports was that one of the major banking firms that they were setting aside uh, millions of dollars, and it might even have been billions with a B. Uh, I'll double go back and double check, but they were setting aside all this money for investment in quote unquote Latinos. Now, certainly there are some black people that are Latinos. That is true. Okay. I think it's Wells Fargo. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. (laughs) But I didn't want to give out inaccurate, but I I thought it was Wells Fargo. But yeah, they set aside all this money for Latinos. And I just don't hear uh, people saying, hey, we're going to set aside billions of dollars for black people. You know, we have really uh, traumatized and terrorized the black people here for centuries. And we're going to try to make right about this. So we're going to invest billions uh, and black people set aside money for them so that we can get all of their problems corrected. We can set up some independent schools for them. And we keep hearing HBCUs are struggling. Uh, we're going to hook their schools up. So, you know, they won't have to worry about funding there and just make sure their problems are taken. I just don't hear that sort of thing for black people. They can hook these programs up for other non-white people and even white people that are having difficulties. They can hook them up and make sure things are straight, but they just don't show that same sort of compassion for black people. And that's just, that's, that is the system of white supremacy at work right there. Hello, Gus. Yes, ma'am. So I have a follow-up question. Um, just as you believe, and I believe the same thing, that it's, uh, that, you know, we should not have white friends. Um, do you believe that, what do you, what is your view on, uh, blacks having non-white, non-black friends given this? Um, <laughs> I chuckled. I, I could repeat what I said, uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I don't like anybody, <laughs> white people, non-white people. Like, uh, I don't even, I don't even use the term friend, uh, on a regular basis other than saying we should not have white friends. I think that's the, the, the context that I use the word friend most frequently. Um, what I would say is, is anybody, uh, that I'm going to have contact with, contact with, if they are a non-white person, Uh, It would have to be constructive and there would have to be uh, honesty in terms of uh, analysis and the way that we discuss uh, the system of white supremacy. Uh, Like I have uh, non-black, non-white people that um, we, you know, spend time together. Uh, Folks might even say, hey, you all are friends Uh, where I've stayed at their house. I've met their parents and, and the whole nine. But 
they honestly acknowledge the system of white supremacy. They would be the first one to say, absolutely, black people are treated way worse uh, than everybody else. Uh, and they make sure to remind other people of that who are confused or might not want to acknowledge that when we're around saying that publicly. Uh, they, you know, are, they understand the system of white supremacy. So that would be a huge, at least for me, anybody that, you know, if they're a non-white person, black or even a non-white, non-black person, uh, if we're going to have contact, there's going to have to be uh, honesty about the system of racism, white supremacy, and and the way that we invest our time and energy. Like, I'm not just going to be hanging out with this person for nonsense. And that's anybody. I'm not just going to be hanging out with this person uh, for foolishness. Let's go to the club. Uh, you know, let's let's go see the new Rocky movie or something like that. Like, we're going to have to have uh, constructive behavior. Anybody, anybody uh, that I am spending time and energy with, it's going to have to be constructive uh, where it's constructive for me. It's constructive for the other person. And ideally, we are doing something that is working towards eroding, replacing white supremacy with justice uh, for the, the limited amount of people that I do uh, spend time and energy with. That tends to be the like I can't even think of anybody that I spend time and energy with that uh, we can't talk about racism. They understand racism. Um, and, and are willing to speak honestly about it. Like all the people that I have, you know, spent any of my time and energy, uh, with, even if we're just going to go kick it and go to the beach or, you know, something like that. Um, they still understand racism and we might even be talking about white supremacy while we're on the beach. So, um, certainly, and I, I mean, folks can come up with their own code about whether or not, you know, you think it's constructive to, to be in contact, uh, quote unquote friends with non-white, non-black people. But, uh, at least for me, my code is anybody, if we're going to be so-called friends or spending time together, it's got to be constructive and we got to be able to speak truthfully uh, about racism, white supremacy. Hope that makes sense. If it's not, let me know. No, no that's helpful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can even say one of the reports that happened today, my non-white, non-white, per, excuse me, non-white, non-black person that I, I do spend uh, downtime with, I think, as they call it. Uh, I messaged them right today uh, as we were getting ready to come on live. Um, we were at Donnie Chen is a non-white, non-black person, so-called Asian here uh, in Seattle, Washington. He was shot and killed earlier this year. I don't know if this got a lot of national attention, but this was a pretty big story here in Seattle. He was shot and killed. Uh, in uh, Chinatown, the international district in Seattle, which is very, very close to the stadium where the Seahawks play football. And uh, this, I mean, lots of attention. The racist aspect of it was astronomical because they blamed it on black people. Uh, all the way around, they blamed it on black people. Uh, Donnie Chen, who had worked, devoted his whole life pretty much to working against racism. Like this area is a lot of non-white people, even though they're non-black, but they're still victims of racism. And the police, same sloppiness that they typically do. The police wouldn't respond if there was a problem. 911 emergency response was really slow uh, when they would call and have a problem. So he ended up getting CPR training and a police scanner and would just go out and try to help, you know, non-white people, other victims. Uh, who lived in this area, the International District. But there was a hookah club, and it was run by black people. I think they're classified as Africans. Uh, but they owned this hookah club. Other black people would hang out there. 
the shooting happened close to where this club was. So they immediately blamed it on the club. And people went out and marched and said, close the club down. We're tired of these hooligans and rah, rah, rah. You're bringing all these uh, thugs and bad people in and you killed Donnie Chen. Didn't arrest anybody. Police still haven't arrested anybody. They had a report in the Seattle Times this week uh, where it's been five months uh, since this happened. They haven't arrest, arrested a soul uh, about this case. And they've kind of stopped blaming all this on the hookah place. But just see, I was there. I was at uh, one of the I was actually at two of the vigils that was held uh, for Donnie Chen. It was amazing the way that white people controlled this narrative and just blamed black people it was black people's fault they did this if we just got this hookah club closed down if we just got these hoodlums out of our neighborhood everything would be great and they marched and and chanted and all that meanwhile the police have done nothing no arrests no nothing five months passed no charges no suspects nothing sitting around like oh we're gonna have a commission we'll have a meeting white people showed out huge when they had the vigils uh the white female commissioner of the police department i believe her name is uh kathleen uh kathleen sullivan uh i'll double check no it's kathleen o'toole kathleen o'toole she was there and gave this passionate speech and we care about you all and donnie chan did so much and we're gonna fix this uh and i think they had other prominent people i think the mayor might have even been they had all these powerful white people come and act like they cared about what happened nothing uh, and whites are phenomenal. They are great at doing that sort of thing and still being able to stick it to black people the whole time and say, oh, it's their fault. This hookah bar hadn't been there. If these hoodlums hadn't been out there because of this hookah bar, this wouldn't happen. Donnie Chen would have still been here. Just phenomenal incident of white supremacy racism uh, that I saw up close and personal. Uh, as I said, I don't think this got, you know, big national attention, but that was pretty huge uh, around these parts. And it's still, you know, getting attention in uh, the local papers and what have you. Uh, the caller uh, that dialed in 0488-0488, your line should be open as well. Did you have comments you want to add? Oh, how you doing, Gus? Uh, this is Daryl from Florida. I'm actually I, I, I'm a native from New York. Um, I'm glad to be able to contact you on your you – know, this is the first time I've been listening to you for the past four or five months. Um, I was listening to the program earlier, and um, my cousin, um, I have a cousin, she's a, uh, a doctor, um, Dr. King from, uh, Dr. Sharon King from uh, Washington, D.C., and um, so she had got me into, you know, being conscious, and I just started to be conscious of, um, you know, what's going on. I knew something was going on, but once I heard Dr. Welsing and nearly full speak about the system. Then, um, you know, I jumped out of my seat. I said, yeah, I knew it was something going on. But, um, you know, 2016, I, I agree with you on, you know, we have a lot of work to do. And um, we, um, you know, we have to educate, especially younger people, you know, into, you know, uh, you know understanding what's going on, what our history was, is, you know, was, and, you know, just, just educate them, you know, into, you know, uh, what, uh, uh, what's really, you know, what's happening in the world. And, it's, and, and we're, yes, we're in a war. Um, sometimes it, it, it saddens me to, to, you know, when I think about 
all the scholars, you know, well seen, nearly full of, um, you know, all the other ones that have been doing this for so many years, and we're still at the level that we're at, you know, not understanding. And, um, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, we have a lot of work to do, you know, but not to be discouraged, but we have to just keep pushing forward because we have a, we have, to, if we understand, we have a big, we, we started society, you know, we started the earth. We were the first ones here. And once we understand that, then it's, you know, we, we know we can, we can push forward to, you know, move forward. And, um, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. All right on. Right on. Good to think we had a couple first-time callers, uh, male and female. Good to hear uh, from first-time callers and hope the program is worthy of your time and energy. Um, I'm reminded Dr. Kamal Kambon, heard him in the audio clip, uh, giving his comments on uh, Dr. Ben, the late Dr. Ben. Uh, but Dr. Kambon, he always uh, reminds me when we're talking or if he hears other people uh, talking and he says uh, we should uh, just be accurate with terms uh, that uh, we are not in a war that whites are waging war against us uh, we are not waging war against them at all we are not at war uh, with white people at all uh, and I think that is uh, extremely important to just make that uh, clarification because I think a lot of people state it you know, that way that we're in a war and, and that is not the case uh, there. There is a war being waged, but it unfortunately is very, very one sided where whites are waging war against us. And, you know, most of us are uh, either unaware or just the casualties. As uh, we wind down, if other folks, if you have comments you want to get in, we have about 20 minutes left. Uh, you can hear the battle simulation in the background. Any excuse to let off a round or two under the system of white supremacy? Racism is war. Uh, folks have anything they want to make sure they uh, get in before we uh, wrap things up. Um, anything that you you know think folks should be looking out for in 2016? Uh, if you have projects or specific goals individually uh, that you want to be working on uh, for 2016, uh, definitely feel free. Let us know. Uh, I also wanted to get in for the Young Turks. That's another example. I think I've talked about them consistently. I played the sound clip where they were talking about the Atlanta teacher situation. That's another one where they can blatantly talk about a situation that, in my view, white supremacy racism is at the core. Again, Ethan Couch can go out and kill. This white team can go out and kill people. No conviction, no jail time. Or he did get conviction, but no jail time and, you know, whatever. Just just don't do it again. These black educators, bam, we're going to hammer them out and give them sentences uh, as though they were, you know, Charles Manson or something. They make no mention at all of, oh, yeah, these were black educators. That's why I said they will. They are very good. If it's something like a police shooting or something like that. Yes, they will talk about racism. And I, you know, give them my criticisms uh, even when they do that. But when you have other incidences, because white supremacy saturates everything, you can just listen to the way that they talk. They do a whole segment of eight minutes where they give all of this, uh, in my view, faux outrage. But no mention of, oh, yes, it was a white judge who handed out these sentences to exclusively black educators and this is another aspect of white supremacy racism no mention of that at all uh, and again the importance of black journalists 
Uh, other folks have things they wanted to make sure they got in. Uh, got, as I said, about 20 minutes left. Things you're looking forward to or things that you think we should be mindful of moving forward 2016? Well, I, I have a little, um, I expect for it to be um, something big that's going to happen this year. I can't quite put my hand on it, but these people deal with numbers. And, um, you know, 2016 adds up to nine, and nine is completion, you know. And, um, you know, just just really looking at how all of the European countries seem to bypass on um, having a New Year celebration. A lot of them did under the guise of, you know, saying terrorism. But everyone else is out celebrating. I'm I'm not too sure this is going to be a good year. This might be the setup. Uh, we got the whole thing brewing in Syria with Russia. Um, the dollar is weaker and weaker every day. I mean, it's a lot of things that can go wrong um, this year. And uh, we also have an election year. And um, – uh, all the candidates, man, it doesn't look good for us. It's not at all. No one's trying to, no one, no one's thinking about justice. You know, everyone's thinking about, you know, strengthening the system. So um, I see a lot of bad things happening. I can't, I can't see any, I can't foresee any. Oh, are you still with us, uh, Thomas in New York? Did you get uh, cut off? Oh, he got disconnected. I'm sure he'll dial back in. When he does, we'll uh, we'll get him back on. Um, oh, he dialed back in already. Um, let's see. Got you back, Thomas, in uh, New York. But I was I was pretty much closing up when I dropped. I just don't see any victories for us this year. Um, I see um, Walter Scott Chiefs going bad. I see whole scores just getting it um, what consecutive where he just gets the um, the yeah, they just give them the highest charge, 30 years, 85%, 20, 22 years. I don't see any victories for us this year at all. I, I just, my optimism is, is completely out the door at this point. They, they, the way they ended this year is the way I think the whole next year is going to go. That's a good point about the... Uh, Oh, yes, sir. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, no, I just wanted to comment on Thomas' uh, comment. Um, you know, I just wanted to tell him that, um, you know, we still need to be encouraged. Um, even though we know how they're working and what they have done in the past, this past year, but we still need to press forward and just, you know, keep encouraging each other and keep doing the right thing, keep doing the thing that we need to do for our black people, you know. I mean, if you think about it, they've been doing this for the past 500 years, and so they're pretty much experienced. And we need to, you know, just educate each other you know, and encourage each other, you know, don't be, I'm just, basically, I just want to say, don't be discouraged, you know, you know, we can't, we can't let down, we can't, we 
can't stop fighting, okay? And, yeah, this year it may be, it may come to the point where we have to fight, you know? We may have to put up a fight, you know, because what they have presented to us through this past year of all of our black brothers and sisters being um, um, murdered is that, you know, this is what they're going to do. So it may come to another level where we have to step up and do some more, you know, physicalness within the, you know, within the system. And, you know, that's all I wanted to say. You know, just, just be encouraged, you know. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged that we can do what we need to do or we, we can move forward to do what we need to do. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Black brother. Black brother hell. What was that? Uh, that's just my sound clip I, I play. <laughs> it's a uh, brother and sister when I hear that uh, that sound clip comes to mind. Okay. So if I could just um, say, I mean, I'm always encouraged, but I don't look at things from a black from a black perspective. I start looking at things from the white perspective. And from the from what I see, um, that they they're not gonna let go of their system, you know. And it's nothing physical that could be done against it. Um, you could try to go and fight it. Good luck. I mean, um, they got. I think they did what two hundred thousand credit checks for guns, background checks for guns on Black Friday alone. I mean, they fully prepared for anything counter countermeasures, any type of war tactics. So what I see is the only thing that we can do is to codify our behavior and not participate when we don't have to. And I don't see black people doing that. Black people are fully engaged in the system, and that's why I'm not optimistic at all. It's not because I've given up. It's just that I don't see other black people doing what needs to be done. Uh, the person, uh, yeah. hang on one second. The the person that dialed in, okay. uh, I guess you're on a block line. Did you have uh, something you wanted to get in? I don't know if that's me or not. Is that can that, I hear that would be you? That would be you. Okay. Hey, what's up, everybody? I just wanted to, um, I wanted to get in. I think uh, one thing that helps to, it's a theory anyway. But one thing I think that helps to replace white supremacy with justice is to try to uh, minimize the amount of fun that white people are having uh, while dominating us. And I just, I'm just curious to hear, you know, to so, so start a so-called new year and stuff, be interested if anybody want to share just ways that they uh, intentionally try to minimize the fun uh, that uh, white people have, um, you know, in the system. I'm just, I'm just looking for new ways to, to, uh, to work that, you know, to do that. So, any any ideas that people do that be interesting here? Asking good questions. Uh, I think that's one. <laughs> they do not like inquisitive, curious uh, black people, victims of racism, asking good questions. And uh, even just something as simple as identifying white people as white. Uh, I've seen where that can uh, get a lot of white people uh, where it's like, whoa, uh, this Negro might be a little bit less confused. Um, just 
Are you a white person? Uh, getting them to admit that and acknowledge that or calling them out as white. Um, that's been something that I've seen where it seems like white people, they uh, would rather not be identified that way. And particularly if it's something serious where it's not in a joking man. I guess that would be another one, too. Not joking around and laughing, uh, making a habit of not uh, being joke, joke, laugh, laugh uh, when you're in contact communication with white people. Uh, even if they're telling jokes, you know, don't do a lot of laughing. Just, you know, being I mean, you can talk and be courteous, sir ma'am, but I just don't do a whole lot of laughing and joking with white people. I think that's something that can uh, help erode their fun. It's been my experience. They really enjoy it when they can be around their victims and uh, be laughing and joking, particularly when they can be telling jokes about black people and maybe even sometimes you and get you to laugh at your own abuse and, and victimization. So asking good questions, being serious, identifying, uh, identifying them as white. Those are some of the things that I've seen that can erode some of their enjoyment of terrorizing us. Stay focused in your conversation also to white people. Uh, it takes a, uh, a, a great amount of discipline a lot of times to stay on point, on focus, when you're, especially when you're talking to white people. I know something that I, I picked. I don't. I don't. I'm not real heavy into uh, watching sports or keeping up with it and all that stuff. But um, a lot of people out here are white, and I live in you know in the Washington, uh, Seattle area, and so the Seahawks people be crazy with it and stuff. So people hit me up, you know, white people. I'll be out and about, just randomly asking questions about sports and stuff. And I, um, I pretty much, you know, I, I treat those conversations as if they almost disturbing me, you know, and it really it's versus. Uh, you know, engaging them in any sort of upbeat way about it. And that's that's something I noticed that uh, they don't like that. You know, they, they definitely enjoy being able to uh, talk sports with their victims, you know. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just wanted to comment. Uh, Gus, yeah, you're totally right about that laughing and um, smiling around, um, particularly when you're around white people. Um, yeah, I had to, you know, I had to myself and, you know, being around white people and, and um, being in a conversation and they, they, you know, they say something and, and, and smiling and laughing with them. And, um, I found myself backing off of that now, being that becoming conscious and, you know, just, you know, understand, understanding how they are and, um, not you know they want you to laugh with them, but you know you you know there's nothing funny about what they're saying. And then you have to read into what they're saying too. You have to understand the words they're saying and what they what their meaning is about what they're saying. Um, so you know, yeah, I just wanted to comment on that. And and Thomas, uh, I just wanted to say, you know, I you know I know you're not um, I know you're not discouraged. But I just want to say, you know, we just have to, you know, yeah, we have a lot to, you know, we have to, uh, you know, um, because of how long they have been doing what they've been doing, white supremacy, we have to do our part 
and educating everybody, especially the younger people, educating them about their history, about what's really going on. So I have a grandson that's 14 years old, and he didn't even know. He, I mean, you know, you talk about education in schools. It, they, he's been taught about Columbus discovering America. And when I spoke to him a couple of months ago, he didn't know that Columbus actually didn't discover America. You understand? And that, you know, there's people here before, there's Indians here before um, um, America, you know, before Columbus came. So, you know, all of that, you know what I'm saying, all that is to say we need to educate each other, educate the younger ones. So once they become educated and know this knowledge about what actually has been going on, then they can understand what kind of world they're living in. And I will mute my line. Thank you. If nobody got any other, um, you know, suggestions on how to take the fun off of white people, I, I was wondering if anybody on the line um, is cool with uh, a black person or a non-white person. You know, they, they're pretty cool with them, like a family member or somebody they're pretty cool with. That's in a sexual relationship with a white person. And just, uh, I know this has come up before, but just how how they, inter- I mean, is that a situation in which they can, uh, you know, minimize the fun for that white person that's, uh, you know, with their homie or, you know, with, with their uh, pal. Is that, is, you know, just techniques on how to do that? Because it's almost like you still got it. You're trying to be cool with your, with your, with your, with your pal or, you know, relative to some degree, but then it's like, uh, you know, how do you also uh, get them to break up? You know what I'm saying? Without, I don't know, without, without uh, uh, damaging the non-white person too, I guess. You know, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> that seems In like. In my opinion. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I say, man, well, once I hear that, man, you compromise. I, I kind of limit my my range around you. you. You know, you're dating someone of the white variety. You know, I I I know that I know from experience that that's a very compromised black person. They're getting a very high dose of white validation. And uh, I don't want to be around that person. Honestly, they're very dangerous. They become just as dangerous as that white person sometimes. So if um if you deal with someone that's dating uh, with a, I mean I don't care if it was my brother, I would <laughs> would deal with the war. Mhm. Yeah. Um. I mean, I I I agree with you from the standpoint of not wanting to be around. You know, people who you know who behaving in that fashion and confused like that. But it's like, uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Can I still be heard? Okay, but the thing is, though, I, I've I've uh, I've surmised that in order to achieve effective numbers needed to have a critical you know mass of people enough to replace white supremacy with justice, the people who are going to be needed are are you know non-white people, black people who are either currently having sex with white people or are interested in having sex with white people, you know, who are still willing to do it. So it's like, uh, I think it's somehow important to try to figure out a way of how to still tolerate or be around, you know, these victims who are, you know, confused enough to want to be having sex with white people, um, you know, enough to figure out how to uh, deconfuse them enough to, I guess, quit the behavior, you know, and also try to get uh, codified on their, you know, on their own somehow. So, 
you know, I don't like being around them either. It's usually more of a headache, but it's like I think they're uh, I think they are uh, part of the you know part of the solution to this problem is figuring out how to uh, deconfuse these people. You can't deconfuse someone that has a white person look in their eyes and say they love you. Understand me? Like that's it. It's over for that person, man. It's done. They their their mind is messed up, and that's a high. That's like the crack of white validation right there. That's like the age of it. Like they got the disease full blown. It's over for them. Because that's the thing is, that's the largest amount of people, like, on the planet. That's the largest amount of people. Uh, most people on this planet, are non-white people, are either having sex with white people or willing to. <laughs> that's my theory on that. They're either having it or they've been so, you know, bombarded with the, with, with the uh, deception on it with the, you know, with the sex of white people thing, you know, that white people are the best and all that, and Barbie is, just, you know, is, is, is look good and all that, that they either have sex with them or willing to. So it's like, you know, these are, these are, these are people that need, the, that, that need the information the most. You're right. Um, um, you know, these are people that haven't been educated. They don't understand, you know, um, what's going on. They don't, um, they're not seeing, you know, by them having sex with white people, they're not seeing our history and understanding our history. They, they, they just need to be educated. And, you know, if they're willing to be educated, you know, which, are, you know, I'm thinking right now that, you know, Right now, it's kind of hard because once they're in, involved in that relationship, you know, you can't tell them anything. So, like Dr. Wilson says, whoever will, will, you know. So, you know, it's, it, it's you know, it's, it's a, like, it's, it's, it's kind of hard. But, you know, like I said, we just have to still, you know, push forward and try the best we can with each other. And like um, um, Gus says, um, be patient with, uh, you know, in the spring. He said, be patient with, uh, help us be patient with other, other black people. Thank you. I uh oh <laughs> got to the end. One of our one of our listeners in the UK was uh, gonna participate because it's morning there, so they uh, it's easier for them to part to participate. But we're almost at the end now. Um, I was uh, just gonna say, uh, I guess it would depend on levels too. Like if it's uh, quote unquote boyfriend girlfriend thing, or are they married with children? Like the level of contamination, I guess that was the word that was used. Uh, the level of victimization uh, would probably factor heavily in proceeding. But if it's you know just primarily minimizing some of the fun that the white uh, perpetrator uh, is having in sexually exploiting uh, this non-white person. Um, I would say uh, I think this came up earlier this year with the black male that was in McKinney, Texas. That was another big one uh, with the the pool incident. But uh, it was a black male a couple of weeks afterwards where uh, his friend was in a tragic arrangement with a white woman. This is a black male was in some sort of sexual arrangement with a white woman. They had a dispute, the white woman and the black male that started, I guess, at a different location. And they came to this black male's residence and she was arguing and all that. And so the black male the friend asked them to leave just like you all are arguing and all this, you all got to leave. 
And so the white woman calls the police and says, uh, yeah, these black guys are here and they're talking about that they're going to shoot the police and blah, blah, blah. And the police come and throw them on the ground. They're handcuffed and got guns on them for like 30 minutes and all that. And we had the black male on the program and I was telling him, like, us just having a code. Like, okay, uh, you are my friend, this black male, you're my friend, but you are in some sort of tragic arrangement with this white woman. My code is I don't allow white people at my residence and just, you know, explaining the logic of that when assistant, you can talk to both of them. I think Mr. Fuller has said that cause he had said he had some of that in his family and, you know, just being calm, having rational discussion about racism. I think that that can erode some of the enjoyment uh, for that white person. You can even do some of the same, same things, just asking questions. Uh, you can even do it in a way where you're not even asking directly about racism, white supremacy. Like, you know, have you, have you ever practiced racism? Have you ever, been, you, you can even go about it, just talking about different films uh, or television programs that deal with racism, white supremacy, just asking them questions uh, about those films, particularly if you give me inside information on things that they watch or if they have certain programs that they like or movies uh, that they like and watch together. You could ask them about that or things that are in the news. There's been so many prominent uh, things. Uh, if you can ask them uh, questions about that sort of thing, I think that can uh, that can go to to your point as well. Uh, she called, man, uh, I'll add her to the conversation. Let's see. Uh, are you, we are actually on the air live. Our caller in UK. Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Grant. We, uh, we actually have been on for, for, uh, three hours, but since you did call and I told you, uh, you definitely would be welcome to, uh, to chime in, uh, during our year in review. Uh, anything that you want to tell uh, our listening audience, anything that you think it would be important for us to uh, ponder going into 2016 related to what you're seeing over in the UK? Oh, gosh. Um, there's just so much going on everywhere, isn't there? Um, I'm not sure what I can say at the moment. Can I just listen in for a little longer? I mean, for a bit first. <laughs> uh, are you leaving? Are you leaving this minute? <laughs> we literally we did our three hours. We've been on uh, since your oh. time, eight a.m. It's uh, let's see if I get my math correct. It's uh, or I guess we've been on earlier. I think I gave the incorrect time. We started at five a.m. your time. That's what it is. We started at five a.m. your oh. time, and we went <laughs> yeah. to eight a.m. I gave the wrong time, but since that was my error. Um, if you uh, have anything you would like to share, you can hear the explosions in the background. It just went 216 here. Uh, if you have anything okay. uh, that you want to share uh, that you're seeing or what have you, uh, feel free. Because that was totally my error uh, in, in being three hours off with the time difference. Okay. Um, well, the way that I see it is that things may not necessarily be the way that we think it is. I think that there's a bigger um, story behind all that's happening here, I noticed um, when I was doing some of my research that in the 1920s, the eugenics team went to Jamaica. And when they were in Jamaica, they apparently were supposedly investigating mixed race people, as though there's not enough people of dual heritage in, in America. So I was thinking to myself, two years in um, Jamaica, what are they up to? And then um, 20 years later, groups of Jamaicans are invited over to England and then it seems as though they've spent so much time encouraging our men to mix with white women. So, you know, I just feel that there's something that was going on um, from the 1920s um, and the numbers of the black people mixing up with white people in this country um, 
is all part of that something, that, that agenda, if that makes any sense. I know that um, Hitler came out with um, the contraceptive pill, probably brought it to Jamaica. Jamaica has the highest numbers of um, multiple births. So um, I don't know. I just feel that there's something, something deep that we need to sort of pay attention to that's going on over there. I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, it actually is is right in line kind of with what we were just talking about in terms of dealing with non-white people who are uh, engaged in sexual intercourse with white people. We were, I mean, literally just as you rang, that's what we were talking about um, and how that's a big part of, of the system and how they maintain uh, control over us. Um, I guess just in terms of, because uh, I think it was just said that a lot of us, we don't understand how that impacts the battle simulation. You can hear it in the background because it just went 216 here. Um, but yeah, that how a lot of us, we don't understand that aspect of racism, white supremacy, uh, and how that fuels their agenda and how that's one of the big have-tos that you got to have, that you have to have large numbers of non-white people who are being sexually exploited by white people, that that is tremendous for their system, uh, producing offspring. That's, we talked about that before. And just the confusion that it has on non-white people's mind, both the non-white people that are in those tragic arrangements and non-white people seeing that, how it has such a detrimental uh, impact on their mind. I think white people, they totally understand uh, the value of that uh, in maintaining their system uh, and why it's, uh, you see so much of it being promoted in television and that sort of thing and even why that pops up as the solution to the problem. If we just have more uh, getting in bed together, that that will work out the problem, that you, you hear that being suggested, uh, both people being funny and people being serious on a constant basis. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure we we'll be able to uh, get more into that as we go. Did you, anything else you wanted to, to make sure you got in since you're dialing in? I wanted you to participate in everything, but I just messed the time up. Anything else you, you want to make sure you get in and share? I'm kind of thrown off because, you know, basically I was expecting to sort of get the feel of the conversation. Um, just all I can basically say is that the numbers are dying out in this country. I know people fall in and see, you know, some optimism that our men are now starting to look at the women now that they're reaching 50. But it doesn't help. The two, there's no children. If, if you went up north in, in, um, in, in England, you will not see any black children born in lots of different areas. It's, you know, just children from a dual heritage background and, and then white, basically. But to me... If you watch any adverts, if you watch any television, they always promote black man with white woman. And in the next two generations, I don't really think there's going to be any black people left here. Or if so, it'll be just new incomers from Africa. But um, I just think you need to be aware of that in America because I do feel that I've noticed it more on in the media in America as well. You know, so be very aware. Speak to your children as they're growing up. I spoke to mine. I educated my child. I told him when he was going to school that when you first go there, the teachers are going to absolutely love you. And then one day when they see that you're starting to get older, taller, they'll start to turn on you. And it, when it happened, he was prepared for that. You know, so you have to be aware of what's going on here and watch it because it will happen there. Absolutely. If I can... Uh... We were talking about Thomas in New York. We were just talking about this, I think, a week ago about 
the importance of sharing information with our children, younger black people that we're in contact mm-hmm. with, how that's hugely uh, important. Uh, and that's a major part of the problem where our grandparents and aunts, uncles, particularly older black people, uh, and even if you're a parent of you, you know, whatever, just sharing that constructive information uh, with younger folks is crucial. And how us not doing that is an astronomical part of the problem. And I think that's come up a couple times during the broadcast tonight. But that is, I mean, critical. Uh, if anything, folks can just take more time in doing that. Uh, if you are a parent, I'm going to make sure I'm talking to my young folks, children. If you don't have children, if you have nieces, cousins, whatever, uh, or just younger black people that you care about, I'm going to make time to talk to them and if you have if you're fortunate to have aunts uncles grandparents uh older black people in your life that you have contact with particularly older family members man get your offspring and sit down questions we have a whole list of questions and we might even do a video and get them to talk to you about their thoughts experiences with racism Uh, if you got black people in your family that are over 60 over 70 over 80 man it's no way that they can be void of just all kinds of lessons and things that they can share about racism that i think is huge uh we should be doing that and get that information passed because i mean that puts i think 909 when he says puts flesh and blood on it. When we talk about racism, we're not just talking about something that happened 8,000 years ago. We're talking about things that have happened. My family being terrorized and victimized and harmed and all kinds of people that I care. Oh, man. Uh, oh, hang on. We just, I'm going to connect us again. Access code accepted. This conference is being recorded. Q&A session started. Got disconnected. That is crazy. And I even, our UK caller stuck with us. It wasn't even that I dropped my line or anything. I just got knocked <laughs> off the uh, the program line. But I was just saying, really making sure that we're talking, uh, getting older people, talk to them, get them to share experiences. There's no way if you got an 80-year-old grandparent or 75-year-old, even late 60s uh, grandparent or parent, aunt, uncle, whatever the case is, they have got to have some just astronomical lessons and things that have happened to them. Very traumatic, unfortunately, but things that I think it would just be crucial to share that information. That's something that more of us should make sure that we take advantage of. As you know, we've been talking about with Dr. Welsing, you just never know what can happen in the system of white supremacy. I mean, respect that as gold and uh, get that information. But um, yeah, Empire, I was just when a uh, caller in the UK was talking Empire uh, scandal. I was thinking about why a lot of that stuff is being uh, promoted. I think we talked about that down through the years. I know Pam has certainly uh, emphasized all that as a major uh, weapon of racism, white supremacy. Uh, since we did our overtime, any any final words you want to get in, our caller in the UK, before uh, we go on into the new year? Just watch your back and listen to your elders. That's all I can say. Dr. Francis Creswell-Welsing, she's fantastic. You know, listen to your elders. Amen. And again, ask, I will I will call uh, Dr. Welsing tomorrow just to get confirmation about if she uh, is OK or if that is not the case. And, you know, I'll report But we'll be on tomorrow with the book uh, club session. So I'll report uh, what I find out. Uh, anybody else, anything they want to make sure they get in before we wrap up? 
Yes, sir. We can hear you. Yes. Uh, now, I just want to your broadcast, your broadcast, um, are you on every um, night at around 8 o'clock? Uh, that's our normal broadcast time. We're not on every night, but our normal broadcast time is uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, except for the Saturday program, and that comes on one hour later uh, on Saturday, every Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. But just you can check on the Facebook page, the Black Talk Radio page. I normally uh, post the episodes uh, at least the day beforehand, uh, the evening beforehand, but you can see uh, who the guest will be and what we'll be talking about all that. But uh, not every day, but when we are on the normal broadcast time, yes, it's 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Okay, and I just wanted to thank you, Gus, for your program. And, I mean, it has, you know, helped me a lot. And, you know, listening to different, you know, um, people, um, scholars speak. And it's it's been a blessing to me, helping me to uh, grow and understand um, racism, white supremacy. And um, I thank you so much. Thank you. And a happy new year. <laughs> right on, right on. Hopefully we'll have something to be happy about. But uh hopefully it's worthy of folks' time and energy and you get a better understanding of what white supremacy racism is, how it works. We'll be back tomorrow, as I just said. Normal time, eight PM Eastern, five PM Pacific, uh study session number four. The half has never been told. Uh Edward Baptist. Uh looking forward to uh reviewing uh, a very interesting book written by a white man. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. I uh, hope you all are safe. Uh, man, not a good night to be out on the road. I would stay in if, you know, <laughs> stay in and, and wait till tomorrow when the sun comes up and even then be careful. Uh, thanks everybody for, uh, tuning. I hope, uh, we will meet again in about 24 hours for the book study session. Uh, thank, if you have any questions, confusion, uh, if you couldn't find something, uh, just drop an email until justice at gmail.com and we'll try to set it straight. Uh, with that, Again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, Man, if you're going to be driving, passenger, pedestrian, you never know when it's going to be Daniel Holtzclaw. Uh, You want to be lucid. uh, You want to be clear thinking so we can make the best possible decisions uh, to take care of ourselves and anybody, you know, you might be responsible for. Uh, Again, uh, our thoughts and prayers with Dr. Welsing. Hope she is safe. Uh, I'll confirm and let everybody know uh, less than 24 hours. I'll call in the morning and I'll report back. Uh, With that, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, Each and every time we are in contact with another black person, it has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. And again, our thoughts, prayers with Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Goodbye. Hi, Lorraine. I was not expecting that. I've just literally woken up. <laughs> How are you? It's crazy. It's uh, <laughs> It's been really cold here. Okay. Unusually uh, cold for these parts. Like, uh, I'm trying to, let me see if I can do the Celsius uh, conversion. <laughs> um, 
let's see, it's been Celsius. If I was more intelligent, I would know. I wouldn't have to uh, get the computer to do. Oh, my God. Okay, so it's like negative two Celsius here. Okay. Is that, what is that, like, what's the temperature there now? I haven't looked. Oh, okay. <laughs> I haven't got a clue. Let me see if I can see it on my phone. Nigga, you're so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.